everybody, and welcome to another episode of MCG Rants. I'm Tannen Grace, and as always, I'm joined by Ross Merriam. Ross, how you doing today? I am doing quite well, actually. It just feels good today. I don't know. Yeah? Maybe I slept well. I don't, I don't really know. I'm just in a good mood. Maybe it's the couple beers I had before the show. Yeah, is it the changing of the season a little bit, too? I, I know, aren't you a fan of this time of year? I am. I am. Uh, you know, my, my well, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the cast before, but my, my dad and my grandfather before him operated a Christmas tree farm when I was young. And so Christmas was always kind of a big deal in our house. You know, I, th- I think it, in, in most households, uh, you know, if your fa- family celebrated the holidays to any reasonable degree, you usually favored one over the other between Thanksgiving and Christmas, like which one was sort of more important and a bigger deal. And in my family, you know, Christmas was easily uh, more important. Honestly, like Thanksgiving sort of was important only because it marked the beginning of the sale season. It's always like a lot of families, you know, traditionally would get their tree the day after Thanksgiving. You know, usually people would have off work or kids would have off school. And so that Friday is actually a big day. People will go out and and get their tree. So uh, so Christmas, always, always a big deal, um, you know, to this day, even though we don't operate the farm anymore. And, uh, you know, I just I, I I like the snow. Most people hate it. I'm fortunate to where I basically don't really have to deal with it. And that's most of why people hate it. Like I, I don't drive, so I never have to drive in it. And I live in an apartment where my landlord takes care of, you know, lawn care and stuff. So I never have to shovel any snow. It was annoying to me, you know, when I was you know, a teenager and forced to shovel snow a lot. Um, so it's just all upside for you is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, even then I still kind of enjoyed snow as long as, you know, when you're shoveling, as long as you get the light uh, sort of drier powdery snow that skiers like. Uh, you probably know nothing about snow, having lived in nothing but warm climates. Not, not a thing. Yeah. So, like, there, there's sort of snow varies based on the sort of the moisture content. I would say the dry, powdery snow is really light and fluffy. It's great for skiing. Uh, really bad for snowballs because they don't really stay together. And it's the the wet, dense snow that's good for packing snowballs. But the light stuff is way easier to shovel. It's you just fucking throw that shit everywhere. It's the dense stuff that you're fucking jamming the shovel in. And it feels like, you know, you're actually lifting weights every time you take a scoop. So as long as you get the light powdery snow, shoveling, it's not a big deal. And I just, I don't know. I, I usually, I'm, I would prefer if the winter lasted for like two months instead of three or four. Right? Uh, you know, that kind of cold weather. I'm usually sick of it after a couple yeah, months. Yeah, we in. only get like two months of winter here. Yeah, so. and your winter isn't even really winter. Um yeah. You know, if it rained the other night here, it might have snowed. Yeah. It got really, we had a freeze here a couple days ago. The, the winter here in Roanoke is barely winter, you know, relative to the Northeast. And uh, especially if you're from the, the Northern Midwest, I actually think has it has it worst um, in terms of just cold and snow. But I I love the first, like, I, I love December and January. And I'm usually, by the time February rolls around, I'm just like, fuck, let it warm up again. Like, I'm, I'm sick of this. But in December, I'm excited for it. I'm like, God, ah, like the first snow, I'll, I'll just sort of walk around a bit. And uh, um, I, I mainly, I just like very, I, I think I just like variation. I actually enjoy seasons. But I don't know. I'm just in, I'm in, I'm in a good mood today, Tannen. I, I noticed. Let's say you're chatty. I like it. I don't have to carry the show by myself anymore. No, I'm joking. But um <laughs> Well, let's say, uh, yeah, just, I haven't really been up to anything over the last week. It's been kind of a, a slow part of the year. The weather's getting colder, so I'm not outside as much. Uh, my dog likes it a lot, even though, um, 
it, it's funny. Uh, she, she likes it a lot, except for if it gets a little bit wet in any way. Like if it rains at all or whatever, she's like, "Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going out there. It's cold and wet outside. No, thank yeah, you." Yeah, cold and wet is a horrible combination. Yeah, slush, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Sleep so like slush. Like we had a uh, a day the other day where it kind of just drizzled like all day, and it was just like you know it was just dark all day. It felt yeah. like it was like dusk all day. And my dog didn't really go outside. She didn't really want to play much or whatever. And now I'm I'm having to deal with that for the next two days because now she didn't play enough in one day. So now she wants to play all day every yeah. day to kind of like... Those, those energy reserves are at max. Yeah. Like the weather actually kind of cleared up a tiny bit at like 9 p.m. It was dark, but like it got better. And I took her out for like her nighttime bathroom and she had the zoomies. And my dog is like you know, four, four and a half years old or whatever. She's just out there running laps around my backyard. I'm like, what yeah, are you like doing? Yeah, she yeah she's still the same size once. It was actually really it brought a smile to my face. It was really cute, yeah. you know, kind of thing. So, uh, you've been up to anything uh, recently? I know we recorded that uh, the extra episode of the show. Yeah, but. yeah, but I've mainly just been, you know, anticipating the start of the basketball season. Maybe that's why I'm, I'm in a good mood. You know, training camp started basically yesterday. Yeah, you're getting ramped up fast. For yeah, this, yeah, for yeah. The everything's season. happening really quickly. You know, we're starting to get just sort of news in. Players are back in, working out a little bit. Uh, you know, every everything's starting. They're, they actually released the results of the first round of COVID testing, and then like four, I think it was forty-eight players out of five something tested positive. This is like uh, probably about expect expectation. I don't, I don't know, and we'll see. You know how well the NBA handles a more open season. You know, they're not in a bubble. They're restricting fans, and a lot of arenas are having none. And the the ones that I think the Jazz are allowing fifteen hundred people. Out of you know about so like one tenth capacity, uh, and that's about where you know it, uh, I haven't looked at it, but maybe a third or half of the league is doing something like that. Most are, aren't allowing any fans at all, but still with the traveling and not real, not the strict you know code of the bubble. We'll see you know how well the NBA does now relative to MLB and NFL because it, it's, it was sort of a it was laughable comparing them when the NBA was in the bubble, but it's the NBA that has the capability of doing that. When they have just much smaller rosters, you know, and if baseball and football, you've got 50, 60 people on a roster. Yeah, yeah. Like football teams are, I mean, what, I think like 50, for a game? I think it's 53. You probably need 100 people per game. Yeah, yeah, coaching staff. Yeah, they, they have yeah. coaching staff too. Coaching staff, then like, like the people that are like there for like, because it's more just the coaching staff too. There's people that are there like, you know, you have like your people that are doing the travel and like making sure everything's together. You have people that like r- actually run what's going on other than the football. You know what I mean? You know, like, it, and it seems like everything's a little easier for the NBA, a lot smaller, like he's a lot more condensed. Same thing with like hockey. I'm sure hockey's going to pull it off a lot better and, and easier. I think are, are pretty big too because they don't. Yeah, they don't. Play not comparatively, they, do, they substitute a lot. I know. It I'm saying not comparatively to like football, yeah, yeah. where you don't need a yeah, hundred people. Still worse. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. You know, baseball it's like thirty plus, maybe another twenty, considering everything. And that's if people, that's if people travel. You know, they're going to be traveling less now. They're going to be traveling lighter. Now we'll, we'll see like how many Lou Williams incidents we have in the you know, oh God. first two or three months of the, of the NBA season. But that's somebody's trying to ruin the whole season themselves. They're like, ah, hold my beer, yeah, yeah. ruin this whole thing. Go to the strip club. Yeah, we're we're under three weeks from the start of the NBA season. It's it's funny that you you, you mentioned that specifically because I almost went off. They um they had you know the award season. We talked about this about a week or two ago. They had the award season for baseball recently, and um 
Don Mattingly got, you know, manager of the year for the Florida Marlins because, like, they made the playoffs, you know, like, they made this huge whatever, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, what a great story. This team that wasn't supposed to win and lost, like, half their players early in the season to COVID uh, protocols or actually just positive tests and stuff like that. And, like, they actually still persevered, had a winning record, made the playoffs here, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, you mean the team that almost got the MLB season canceled because they were the team that broke protocol and broke curfew one night to go to a strip club and then gave everyone on their team and the opposing team COVID. And so, like, that's why they, like, everybody's like, yeah, it's such a, you know, a great story. I'm like, no, no, it's not. Also, Don Mattingly is a piece of shit. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to mince words. Not not a fan of uh, that coach and, and that team. So, whatever. Anyway, but we did it. It's just, just, just don't do it. Like, <laughs> just, you know, be a reasonable human being. Yeah, that's that's asking a lot, apparently. But, yeah, I mean, anyway. for the entire U.S., not just professional athletes, apparently. Yeah, no, no, no that's what I meant. Yeah. In general, that that's yeah. asking for a lot. We did get we, we did get a, a nugget of Atlanta Braves news today. If you've seen this on Twitter, uh, yeah, they, about the non tender Adam Duvall. Yeah, so I mean, I could talk about this for a couple seconds. So I I do think he's important Can to the team. Explain to me what this means. Okay, so. Uh, contracts are really weird in baseball. They're different than like all the other sports. So when you have a contract in baseball, like a like a, a free agent contract, that contract, unless stated in some way, is fully guaranteed. You cannot do any stuff like in basketball where you cut them before a certain point or in football or like you release them yeah, or like... In football part, and basketball, there's usually X amount of guaranteed money and X amount of, you know, not guaranteed money. As long as you as long as long you don't do something stupid, like you get if you get hurt in a non-baseball related thing that's against your contract, yeah, like, like this happened years ago. Or going fucking this happened years ago with, I think it was like Jeff Kent. He was like specifically in his contract. He was like not supposed to ride dirt bikes because he was apparently just like a daredevil of dirt bikes. And then he like destroyed his shoulder or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I might be getting the person wrong. But you get know what I'm saying? They're like, dude, yeah. you run. And he's like, I slipped by, he's like, I slipped getting the groceries up the, the stairs. And they're like, why is your dirt bike destroyed? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like, we told you not to do this. So like, we're not going to pay you or whatever, you know, like, kind of thing. Or, um, yeah. It got stolen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, also until you reach free agency, the first time in baseball, you're literally just like an indentured servant. They kind of just have you by the balls. And there's a bunch of different ways the uh, that the that the contracts work, but the way this works is the team that has the player has like the rights to the player for X amount of years until they become a free agent. But if they're not under an actual contract, they go through this thing called arbitration, where every year they either you, you definitely don't go down too often, but you get like a significant you get like some portion of a raise depending on how you did that year. So you're not just on like you start at like league minimum ish. And then, like, hey, you're, like, a decent player. Like, you, you played the majors. So, like, here's a 500K bump. And the next year, here's, like, a 1.2K bump and, you know, whatever. And then then there's, like, the good players you get, like, they go from, like, 2 million to, like, 10 million. And those are, like, the superstars, right? Yeah, that's, like, the the Mike Trouts. But but the the, the player has, like, almost no, no control here. The teams have, like, all the power. Because at any point in time, before they have this free agent contract. Who decides those contracts in arbitration? Is there, like, a... The team and the player have to come together and figure it out. Like, they'll each be like, like, the, the team will be like, we'll pay you 4.5. And then the player will be like, well, I'll pay, I want 5.5. And then they're like, usually it's like, well, so 5 million, you know, like agree in the middle, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah. So if they don't agree, they go to arbitration. They go to an arbiter, like they, like, a, like a judge or somebody gets involved. And the team that you're going to an play for literally. entity, not like an employee of Major League Baseball. Right. Uh, they may be an employee of Major League Baseball just for this sole purpose. I don't I don't know the exact minutiae, you know. But it's funny because then they have to like have this this 
talk with somebody about like why they should make less money. So they're going to shit on their own player that's <laughs> going to play for them this year. And so they're like, oh, no hard feelings, right, buddy? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> but feelings, at any but point... You can't fucking throw. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So like up to this date, it's, it's today. This is the reason there's news today. Up to this date, you can just non-tender them their like you can be like yeah i've you know i've got like a five-year deal with the Atlanta Braves like they have the next five years of my control but at any point in time they can just be like eh bye and like you're just you're you're done you're a free agent now and then if someone else picks you up they also get that control like it's like you can you can sign a free agent contract but like or they could just take that control of the player because like Duvall didn't come up with us. He came up with San Francisco, traded to Cincinnati, and then Cincinnati traded him to us a few years ago. And every year there's been the talk like, are we going to tender Adam Duvall? And like, this is the best year he's had in Atlanta. He was a huge part of the team because of injuries. And now they're letting him go because he's going to make a real salary now. He was making like, you know, two or three million. He was projected to go possibly up to seven million. And we've already spent a decent money, a decent amount of money in the free agent uh, market plus here's the thing. It's not 100% that he doesn't come back. They could also just sign him for less as well. He could just be like, look, I'll just take $5 million or whatever. Also, I think that they may be trying to spend that money somewhere else. Uh, they may have plans on what they're trying to do with their roster. Like, this Adam is one of my favorite. not very good, right? I think he's actually very... Like, he's okay, like, he's, he's not like, a superstar. He's like mediocre Adam Dunn. Well, no, no, no. I actually think he's he's better than Adam Dunn in some ways. Here's the thing. Adam Dunn was good because like he got on base and he hit home runs. He was one of the you know yeah. like true the outcome true players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Duvall is a good player. Like he's good at the plate. He's got power. Like he's a power threat. He's not anything amazing. Like when you see his home run totals, we were like, oh yeah, obviously he's a great player. That doesn't say everything. His defense is severely underrated because he's a bigger guy who mashes the ball. He's actually like almost gold glove level outfield play. And that's that's big on a team, you know, like having that good defender. I thought his K rate was higher than it actually is. I thought he was like low thirties like most of these guys, but he's actually just mid twenties, which is still really high. The thing is, is like you're you're remembering the Adam Duvall that was really bad for a few years. Like he was good for a few years. Like he was an yeah. all star. He was on he my really fantasy bad. team one of these years with the Reds, where he had like and thirty home runs, but hit you know yeah. two forty. Yeah, well, that, that's the guy he is. He's going to be a 240, 250 hitter and hit a lot of bombs. But but this last year, you know, his K rate went down to twenty six percent. He still only hit two thirty seven. Yeah, uh, he was really streaky. Yeah, he he had two three home run games within like five days last year, which is very impressive. But uh, he fits their current roster well. It's just like the, the thing is, we need to fill out our outfield for next season, and we need a power hitter in our outfield because we're we're losing right now. We're losing him, and we're losing uh, who was quite possibly one of the best hitters in the, in the game last year, Marcelo Zuna. You know, he like led the league and he led the league in home runs, all the league in RBIs and he hit like 330. He had like the best year of his career uh, hitting in front of Freddie Freeman, big surprise or hitting behind Freddie Freeman, big surprise, you know, kind of thing. And it just matters. You know, that's another thing is if the DH is going to be in the national league or not, that's a big thing. So what's going on in the NBA before I go too far how, down? Hold the, on. How are you losing Marcelo Zuna though? He's a free agent. He just is like, the, yeah, he just, a, we signed him to a one year deal. Like, so last year, he was a free agent from St. Louis and he was coming off of like one of his like worst seasons ever, but he's like, you know, he's a highly talented player. The thing with Marcel is he can't throw anymore. He hurt his shoulder a couple years ago and he literally like, he looks like a, like, like a 12 year old trying to throw the ball. You know what I mean? There's like that big arc. He cannot throw a line drive anymore. He just can't do it. So you don't want him playing the field. He's a very, very, very good hitter. But last year he's coming off of like kind of a down year and no one, wanted to give him like a big deal. I think he turned down like a three-year deal to Cincinnati for like 40 million or something like that and took a one-year $18 million deal with Atlanta. And he's like, I'm just going to bet on myself. And he got into the best shape of his life. You know, that joke, I'm in the best shape of my life. He literally got into the best shape it's of his life. Every sport, every yeah. like training camp. And he training. just fucking destroyed every baseball he saw last year. I also, 
I one of the big reasons I want him back, besides the fact that he really fits our lineup well, and it's only if we have the DH. I don't want to see him in the field because I think I'm a better fielder than he is at this point. <laughs> is he fit really well personally on the team? It seemed like you know Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Freddie Freeman. They all seem to part of, of building a team that like they all seem to, to really like each other. Like he's the one. Um, we did this and you can see it. Other people get where like whenever something good happened, he'd hold his hand, he'd stir. You know, he'd have his finger and he'd stir it up. And every time like you hit a double or home run, they'd be doing it and. uh if I remember right, he was the one when he would round third base. You're not allowed to like touch the third base coach anymore. They would uh, like I think he was him. Is that a COVID thing that you can't touch? Yeah, you couldn't high five people and stuff. Like you were supposed yeah. to not. People still did it. If I remember, it was him. I can't remember. Maybe it was someone else. He would do rock paper scissors real quick. With, like a third. <laughs> you know what I mean? The team just loved him, and he's a high energy guy. You know, he's one of those laid back like let's have fun. He's the dude that's gonna cut up in a good way with the team. So I really hope we get him back. But again, we might not be able to afford him. Is the problem? I see, I'm looking at his numbers. And I see one really encouraging thing and one not encouraging thing. The not encouraging thing is his bad, his batting average of balls in play is unsustainably high last year. Mm-hmm. So his batting average is, is due to regress. Well, there, that that is obviously true. But another thing that you look at is barrel percentage and how hard he hits the yeah. ball. And he's one of the he hits the ball harder than almost anyone in the major leagues. So his his uh, B pip or whatever you want to call it, batting average and balls in play is going to be higher than the average player because he's hitting the ball at like 110 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour, not 90-something like some of the other players. But well, not, we do it, need it's, to it's, add another... I'm not comparing his Babbitt this year to like the average from the league. I'm comparing it to yeah. his career. So yeah, of course. So like he you know, made some ridiculous... Uh, Anytime you have a year like he did, yeah. or a year like Freeman had, or anything yeah, like there's that, some there's some yeah. yeah, there's some yeah. luck involved. And his, his hard contact rate is about as it was the last couple of years with St. Louis, which is above so his like, career average. He's, he's clearly improved over the last few years. But and that was the big not, thing. You know, yeah, that was one of the big uh, storylines signing him is people are like, oh, he didn't have this great year in St. Louis. And like, well, if you look at the peripherals, like his barrel percentage, like how yeah. often he hit the ball solid, how hard he hit the ball, which is what's what's important, right? Like, we get it. Like, getting singles, getting doubles, getting home runs, like, that's nice. But, like, it's it's also luck-driven in some ways, especially yeah. with the way the shifts and, and stuff and are made. And last year, his like, BABIP is, is unsustainably low. Like, yeah, he last year, like, he was— last year to 391 yeah. this year, which is just a ridiculous yeah. spread. So, yeah, they just got really lucky. They, they took a player who was one of the most, un, like, there's a list they have every year of, like, most unlucky uh, pitchers and, and, and hitters, and he was, like, at the top yeah, of the list for hitters. His literal career average for Vabip is, like, right in between those two numbers. So, like, last yeah. year he was uh, as unlucky as possible, and this year he was as lucky as possible. So you have his two outlier seasons, right? Yeah. And we just happen to be on the good end. He And, like, look, good for him. He bet on himself, and he cash, he's going to cash in big, most likely. So. The, the, the really nice thing is... It started last year, his second year with the Cardinals, is his walk rate increases yes. huge and went from, you know, his career rate is 8%. So before the last year, it was even lower than that. But last year, it was 11.3% with the Cardinals, so two years ago. And this last year with the Braves, it went up even more at 14%, which is... Yeah, he's just a good walk. hitter. Like, I had never got to watch him day in and day out. And, like, it's it's hard to really appreciate a player of any sport without watching them day to day. You know, how they, you know, because like you'll see the highlights of their big games and they hit a bunch of home runs or they, you know, they they score 45 points. You know, Donovan Mitchell goes off for 50 or something. You see that. But we, we see the games when, like, they're grinding it out. You see they're, like, you know, you get to see pitch by pitch at bats and how smart he is. Mediocre game. And they yeah, like, you see what he does for the team. That's when I start to really yeah. love a player. His, his, and stuff his like on that. base so, percentage of 431 is like also unsustainably high, but like I could see that next year still being close to 400. Yeah, and that's what made our team so good. Is our our team like we we had a lot of depth last year. Thank God because we dealt with some of the most injuries in the league, and you had to see that. And our team scored the most runs or second most runs in the league, but just because the top like four to five guys in our lineup for most of the year just absolutely raked the baseball. So. 
It's it's nice when you're scoring seven runs a game. It it takes a little pressure off the pitchers or whatever. So what's the NBA okay. thing that just happened? So remember how you know a month ago there was all of this uh, rumor mongering about how Houston was gonna blow it up. Yeah, I, I just made I just saw it. I just saw it. We got a Woj bomb. Houston has agreed to trade Russell Westbrook to the Washington Wizards for John Wall and a first round pick. Well, at least Houston got one of their. They'll have a first round pick now in the next decade. Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, like that, that isn't their own. Like it somehow, <laughs> you know, Washington also. There's been so many rumors about what they want to do with John Wall, and they've been steadfast in saying like we want to, you know, build around Bradley Beal and John Wall. But, and he said he didn't want to go. Right? I think he said he wanted I to mean, stay. Right? There's always. I don't remember the specific instances, but I do remember like there was always something that showed like, that maybe it's not as rosy as everybody lets on, which is, you know, that's just how this stuff is done publicly. So it seemed like, yeah, basically both of these teams like didn't really want to keep everything together, but were prepared if they, you know, had to. And now they're both sort of moving on and saying, okay, well, you know, we'll swap bad contracts. Apparently Houston get like, they, they probably spent the last few weeks negotiating exactly like, you know, what other, you know, resor- uh, resources would go into this trade. And Houston it, were a, was able to, you know, argue, or lobby themselves up to getting a, a first-round pick in the exchange, which is really nice for them. Now, you know, John Wall, if, for people that don't follow basketball, has been massively injured the last couple of years after being an all-star caliber point guard. Especially with a bad injury, too. One that's really bad for basketball yeah, players. He, he, he hasn't played in two years. And so, you know, nobody really knows what he's going to be. And he he also, he's a guy that his best physical attribute was his speed. And that's something that could just never return. And like, that's a, I'm, I'm trying to say this to people because like you think of DeMarcus Cousins, but like the thing that I like to think of, and I know it's not the same injury, I kind of like him to the way Derrick Rose had to like just become a different player because he didn't, because Derrick Rose was the fastest person on the court whenever he played. And that's what made him so good is he pressure you with the speed and he was very good john wall was pretty similar in that in that vein from from my perspective yeah i i agree those two are similar you know style of play and it's taken derrick rose you know even several years after he returned from those injuries to even become a productive figure himself out now now he is so he's wasting away in detroit so i this is this to me makes houston worse in the short term but probably better in the long term yeah, they 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 also get themselves off of some money. Wall's contract is a little lower than Westbrook's because he signed it earlier, uh, and th- these things are all done based on a percentage of the cap of the salary cap at the time. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, varies year to yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's clear that like you know, the relationships with both of these players and their teams were not very good. Uh, but interesting that it's happening now. I'm very mad that we didn't have cameras on us, other than you and I seeing each other doing this <laughs> yeah. because our faces when we both individually read this, like. It, it it's the uh you know the um god who's who's the actor who's star lord it's one of the chris's it's chris the one from um parks and rec oh Pratt. parks and rec yeah you know the you know the uh the gif of him where it's him he does this he like looks at the camera and he goes he does like the surprised face everyone knows that gif. it both of us had that look like also just looked at the camera like oh my god you know kind of thing so um you know while i don't have the level of nba knowledge that you do i will say this because I'm about to, I'm about to get into fantasy NBA season. I firmly think uh, that Russell Westbrook moved up a lot of picks in the in the fantasy draft for this. When you're, I mean, he was putting up some numbers in Houston. It's- I agree, but when you look at like the OKC years where he was like number one option, he has the ball in his hand more because he's gonna have the ball in his hand less with James Harden on the court. I don't, I don't care how much you try, 
you're going to have the ball in your hand less. Washington before. had a 30 point per game scorer last year in Bradley Beal. Yeah. But, but see, the thing is, Beal doesn't have to have the ball in his hand as much as Harden does. That is true. Uh, I, I believe that's he can true. Shoot, you know, he yeah. can shoot more, is what I'm saying. Like, he's a more, he can be more of a spot up shooter. Like, I'm, I think Harden could be if he wanted to, too, but yes. yeah, just didn't. Uh, I'm just saying the way they work, it's like Harden runs the point a lot, even when, when Westbrook's on, on the court. And Westbrook's the kind of guy that like needs to be involved a little bit more, in my opinion. But, but I'm saying just from a fantasy basketball thing, I think some of his numbers are going to go up. So if you're a fantasy basketball player, Russell Westbrook, always a good pick in fantasy basketball, as long as you can take the the bad with the good, is I, I think he's going to be putting up more raw stats this year than he did the, the year or two before. Because in my opinion, he was getting drafted a little too high. Like People were still taking him in like the top three to four picks. And I was like, I, I don't think you should be doing that right now. So No, but that's, I, I mean, campus, you know, essentially just open. So they're going to have to, you know, acclim- uh, acclimate to a new environment, bo- both people. That'll be interesting to see exactly how, how quickly those teams develop. Um, we'll honestly, see what kind of chip on he has on his shoulder, too. Given that Washington hasn't had John Wall because of injury for the last two years, you have to think that, you know, they're better in the short term. And usually the, the East is getting more deeper and deeper. There's a little bit more star power every year over there. Right now, there's like six or seven pretty good teams in the East. Uh, so that, But it's still going to be, I think, pretty easy to nab those last couple spots in the play-in event. Uh, playing tournament so Washington could definitely be there um but th- that's just ooh, this I- I'm also like I- I'm wondering like exactly what John Wall is like physically because you know if they're going to make this trade from Houston side like they get they're going to demand a- you know access to some medical reports from Washington's doctors so they have some insight as to you know what what the recoveries look like for John Wall this is uh I'm, and I'm also as a Jazz fan just relishing in the potential, like, the you know, breakup of, of this this Houston team and them just sucking because they could definitely I could definitely see them trading Harden this year. I don't think it'll happen before the season starts. I think it'll happen before the trade deadline, as they you know, or figure out the market and take their time and get a good offer. Um, you know, maybe like one of the teams that has some resources isn't as good right now as they thought they were going to be and they're like okay let's just blow it up and get james harden and then figure out how to build around him in the offseason um but that's oof. see i told you i'm 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 excited for this nba season shit's shit's gonna go down i'm ready now we, yeah, we've talked exactly. about non-magic things forever now yeah so it's funny because i actually was uh gonna say earlier in the show i was like Let's just get into the magic a lot faster. We have a good, decent bit of stuff to watch, uh, talk about. And then you brought up baseball, and then this happened while we were recording. So the best laid uh, plans of mice and men yes. have the, the, gone and something, something. The road know. to hell is paved with good intentions, Ross. So let's 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 go ahead and start. Um, we're gonna go back to our roots for the first subject tonight. You wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on over in Pioneer, didn't you? Yeah. So there there was you know not only the slate of, of two challenges over the weekend, but more importantly a call-time championship qualifier on Magic Online. And if you look at specifically that qualifier, but also some of the other events that happened, there is a very clear breakout deck for the weekend at Pioneer, and that is Oops All Spells, which has been around, you know, since the release of Zendikar Rising. But this is a specific build that seems now to really be taking over the format, which is an 80-card build with Yorian, though I don't think Yorian is a big part of it. Uh, But the 80-card build... Uh, you know, just adding 20 cards lets you do a lot of interesting things. Because this is a deck that has a lot of cards that it's trying to mill over, obviously, and but doesn't want to draw them. 
So you can dilute your deck of those specific cards while still having that, you know, explosive turn when you get the Ballastrade Spy or Undercity Informer. But normally you would think, yeah, like, I don't want to add 80 cards or add 20 cards to my deck and go up to 80 because I need to find Ballastrade Spy or Undercity Informer early. But what we have figured out, and this was initially in 60 card list, but now a key part of the 80 card list, is that using Neoform and Eldritch Evolution to increase the consistency of your deck is really important and it leveled up the deck. But you couldn't fit 16 of those, so you know, four of all of them. Now you can with 80, so you, you don't really sacrifice in your ability to find one of those cards. And with Eldritch Evolution and Neoform, you're sacrificing mana creatures, which you wanted anyway to increase your clock, let you turn three, you know, combo. And the mana creatures you're playing are the ones that have Hexproof, you know, Sylvan Carry Added and Paradise Druid alongside Tangled Florahedron, which can also be a land. They're all two drops, so Eldritch Evolution or Neoforms all, always works. So, like, if you have two mana and you play a mana creature on turn two, on turn three, even if you don't have a land or you have an ETB tap land, which most of them are, you can Neoform it with one mana floating, find the Undercity Informer, sack the Informer, or you can have three mana for the Eldritch Evolution, and that'll get you up to four, uh, CMC four, and search for the Balistrate Spy. So, I think it, the realization here is that having 80 cards is honestly just better than having 60, which I don't think has ever happened in the history of Magic. People have done it before. There was like famously the the sixty six card scapeshift deck and so, some other places where people have added and obviously like when you're taking advantage of Yorian I agree but here I think it, your deck is better as an eighty card deck even without this Yorian in the sideboard I, I honestly think that's there you know one because there are some games where like you get locked out of your graveyard and you know you can buy the Yorian and do things and like there's Kazandu Mammoth in the deck and just weird creatures that you get to cast and maybe cobble together some game wins that way but. I think the biggest advantage of having the Yorian here is when you reveal it before game one, most of the time your opponent's thinking they're on Esper Yorian, they're on the Transmogrify deck. There's a lot of different Yorian decks that exist in Pioneer. And obviously, you know, now that this deck has had a big weekend, the, the deception is going to get more difficult or, or you know, less valuable. But there's still that, that questioning. Like, if your opponent doesn't recognize your Moto Handle, uh, you know, doesn't really know what's going on, are, are they going to keep a hand that's bad against a control deck that there's a lot of Yorian decks in the format? Uh, you know, are they going to have to mulligan that hand? Are they going to mulligan it? You know, are they going to think twice about keeping a hand that might be good against you, but is really weak to, you know, those, those say other Yorian decks? It really, you know, puts the opponent into a, a kind of bind here. But I, I honestly think this is the first time that I've, I've looked at a bigger than sixty card deck list and thought them adding cards made their deck better. Yeah, you just look at it and you're like, yeah, this just makes sense. Like this, this looks good. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. You, you have, you know, I, I saw a 60-card list where they only played, like, three Silver Smoke Ghoul because they just need to find space. You know, you have plenty of, of additional lands. I guess, like, you have fewer untapped lands now because you always had the, you played the Sultai, you know, black, blue, and green uh, mythic modal double-face cards. Agony's Awakening, Seagate Restoration, and Turn Timber Symbiosis. You can't play, really play any more than that. Uh, otherwise, you, you really weaken your access to the different colors. So that's the one, I guess, downside here is sometimes, like, you can't go turn two mana creature, turn three Balustrade Spies often, that specific curve, but you also are less reliant on that specific curve because you're instead curving into Eldritch Evolution and Neoform more often where you only need the three mana. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, this deck looks great, and it's weird. It, I see this one, and I started thinking to myself, how do you beat this deck, right? Like, like where do you go? And I'm like, oh, maybe we see the return of Leyline of the Void in a lot of decks. You know, you see that in their sideboards, like, for the mirror and stuff. Um, I think that this deck kind of operates in the same like way that 
dredge does where if your opponent ley lines you and they have to be like aggressive in ley lining you or aggressive in resting piecing you the rest of their hand might not function super well right like they're not gonna have that usually plus a bunch of other ways and your deck can just beat them from there like you can cast an arc amoeba uh kazandu mammoth can end games very very quickly uh you know and stuff like that in here and then you you just got some random stuff you know that, that can actually just keep attacking your your opponent a lot of like three power and two power creatures that come down early and it, it might be enough to get through that kind of thing so i try to think is there any other way to kind of combat this that you know of in pioneer that you would think to lean towards so you know i've been playing a lot of Orzov humans for the last month or two and the biggest thing that i have in my sideboard now is i don't even i don't even play rest in peace on my board against them instead i play containment priest because when you have when you haven't shown them a hate card they usually go for it and then you just priest them in response to them going for it and they don't you know get any creatures and and they're, they're usually pretty dead at that point. Yeah. Containment Priest also good against Transmogrify, so you get some uh, some double duty there. So P Priest has been the big one for me, but you see here, they have four Thoughtseize in their main deck. That's stock. So a card that you kind of have to hold in your hand or run out into their various removal spells because they all board a bunch of removal. Uh, you know, so it, it's definitely not a... It's, it, it's not a slam dunk against them. But I like, you know, sort of baiting them into going for it before I have to show them my hate card. So that... Yeah, and you see all of them playing multiple Abrupt Decays and Assassin's Trophies in the sideboard. Just, you know, I always thought this was good, and then I really realized how good it was when I played... Because I played Hogak in a couple of uh, a couple of tournaments because why wouldn't you? It was the best thing to be doing by far. It was super powerful, and it, it was very easy to sideboard when, like, I knew what my opponent's deck was doing. I knew the part of my deck that wasn't great against theirs... And then I could just bring in Abrupt Decays and Assassin's Trophies because it covers all of the hate cards they're going to have for me. You know, and so I will say this, having an 80-card deck does count uh, cut down the amount of times you're going to have an anti-hate card in your opener because when I was playing Hogak, I would mulligan all my 7s that could not beat a hate card, especially if my, if my opponent kept a 7 or kept a 6 very quickly. But I got to say, I like the look of this deck. I'm not surprised that it's doing really well. It put three copies, right? Three copies yeah, in the top, the top eight. They do the championship qualifier, which is you know your major event that mm -hmm. people are trying really hard for. They tend to be bigger. You know, these are this is probably nine rounds of Swiss, I would guess. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that's what it looks like. And it, it does look like this is poised to be you oh, know uh, it looks eight. like eight, eight rounds of Swiss, but it looks yeah this is this does look like this is the deck to beat in the format right now too. So yeah, I, I so in both modern and pioneer. You know, I look at the results every single week. And for the last month or two, in both formats, I almost always see one copy of Oopsla Spells in a top eight. Never more. Just one. Like every time. And I just thought to myself, there this deck, this is the kind of deck that never that usually doesn't get very popular unless it has the reputation of being really, really good. Uh, because there's just so many people that don't aren't interested in playing this style of deck. And so the fact that I saw such consistent results out of it was a really strong sign to me that this deck is just really good. And even in Pioneer, where you, you know you're significantly slower, you're not nearly as explosive without that that Vengevine package. Uh, it still looked really good. You know, I mentioned on an, uh, a previous show, I was impressed by the you know, sort of haunted dead world spine worm loops that gave you a long game even after you executed the combo. Just, you know, you're able to recycle those world spine worms and keep them uh, keep playing. So th this is to me, this was the breakout weekend for a deck that. Should have had this a while ago, but it just takes a while for the, this style of deck to catch on, for people to say, like, okay, this deck is too good for me to ignore. I've got to play it. 
this is the kind of tournament that, you know, the championship qualifier where you see people do that. And a challenge, they'll be like, no, I want to have a little bit more fun. I don't think the deck is enough better than, you know, my other options. Uh, but this is the kind of deck where you see that kind of uh, kind of tournament where you see this, this breakout performance. So uh, to me, this has been a, a long time coming. And, uh, you know, the... I, I can't say I expected the 80 card version to be better, but yeah. looking at it, it, it just makes so much sense. Um, and I want to just briefly highlight the eighth place list with his sideboard copies of Savage Summoning. That is a nice find. This is the kind of like thing you find in a Gatherer or Scryfall search. You're like, I just can't beat people who have counter spells that counter my stuff. Savage Summoning M14 barely makes it into the format. But one green instant can't be countered. This is the next creature card you cast this turn. Maybe cast as though it had flash. That spell can't be countered. And that creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. So you're actually able to go off at instant speed. And do it through counter spells. Really, really nice uh, sideboard find for a deck like this. That, you know, counter spells are going to be a, a big problem. So, uh, you know, especially when you're... I guess Savage Summoning does not stop them from countering Eldritch Evolution in Neoform. So not perfect here, but still quite good in those kinds of matchups. Um, you know, when you can't play Veil of Summer. But at this point, t to me, the, this is the best deck in Pioneer. And uh, something that if you're playing the format right now, you've got to really buckle down and try to figure out this matchup. Because it is, it's far from slap three rest in pieces or four lay lines on my sideboard and call it a day. And that was the last thing that I was going to say is when you look at it and you look at the other decks that are doing well and you look at their sideboards, I'm not seeing enough and the right ways to beat this deck. So again, it's like you said, I think this is a this was due. This deck was due to have this kind of uh, breakout weekend, however you want to put it. So not surprised there at all. Um, I might have to dip my toe back into Pioneer a little bit here sometimes and try this deck out because it looks really cool and really fun. Um, I've never been a big fan of Dredge and these kind of things, but I, I kind of like this one, so I'm, I'm going to try it out. Um, you know, this is something I definitely saw coming. You know, we talked about this when we first saw the the modal lands, and I was like, man, someone's going to start breaking parameters of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With these and we talked a lot about, uh, what was it, Goblin Charbelcher and stuff, and that, that was the thing for a little while. But this, one that emerged in this seems like the Charbelcher deck. Yeah. You know, like the glass cannon, like move in, just go nuts deck. So uh, I like that some deck, you know, took these kind of cards because it's whenever something like this happens in magic and tradition, you know, it does break something somewhere and it's nice to see that it's getting, it's, it's happening in, you know, one of my favorite formats and this deck is really cool. So I uh, like seeing that. And speaking of things that you like to see a deck and that, that are really sweet. Play. Oh, here's the thing. We say that, right. I'm always like, Oh, this looks cool. This deck actually excites me mentally physically spiritually <laughs> emotionally <laughs> emotionally like this deck speaks to me on a primal level you know like i saw because you were like hey like i want to talk about the, the modern thing you know all the formats this weekend real quick before we go into the other formats i'm sorry that are not standard yeah. store before we get into the the championship that's going on this weekend and you're like hey i just want to briefly touch on this one deck and he's like check out this third place list from the modern challenge this week and this to borrow a meme makes me feel things ross this deck like makes me feel well, things too. I I don't know what to call this deck other than the Emery slash Arayo deck. And yes, I said yeah. that Arayo. So if, if you're not as felt right now, so if you're not as old as Ross and I or didn't play back in the day, some of the original there uh, the original flip cards in Magic weren't front faced and back faced. They were both on the same side of the card. It was top and bottom. And so you'd have say that again. It was top and bottom. 
Yeah, yeah. You had a, you had a top fun. half and you had a bottom half, and you had to do something for the top half to like r- r- the car to do a one eighty. Yeah, and a Ryu is is a special one. Uh, and I'm going to talk about why in a second, but I want to read the card to people. So it's it's one in a blue for a flying 1-1, but it says, whenever the fourth spell of a turn is played, flip Arayo. And the the other side of it says, counter the first spell played by each opponent each turn. And that is unbelievably is powerful. Yeah, it becomes an enchantment. Yeah. yeah, so a little harder to kill, actually, in a lot of ways, which is yeah. important. But here's the thing. This card is actually very powerful, and it's really funny. I played in the, uh, I think it was like the first two at a giant world championships or whatever, ever. It was at Gen Con. It, like, um, this is a mil, I'm talking, this is like 2004 or something. You know, this is a million years ago, right? All in their lifetime. And this was the broken deck to play. She played this with like all the twiddle effects, and you just tried to do, because like it counted both of your stuff. So, like, yeah, one player it says can play the a Ryu. Spell of any turn is played, so yes. it doesn't need to be four spells by one person. Yeah. So, but like it on does turn two, the first spell played by any each opponent. So, yeah. if, in two at a giant, you know, you you play a Ryu and a spell. Your opponent plays two spells. You know, so you can do this pretty easily on turn three or four if you have well, a bunch the, of two the, spells. The the big way to do it is, um, I've even seen it go off on turn one. Is you go like land Chromox imprint Arayo, and your your buddy just goes like. Island twiddle my island, casting me one drop, and that's four spells. Yeah, and it's flipped, and your opponents are dead. Yeah, like actually factual and dead. Yeah, now so, each of your opponents in this game encounters each of the yeah. first spell played on each turn, so your turns too. Yep, and their turns. Yep, yeah. This is just busted. It's it was it, it was banned very quickly, yeah. but we actually we were the we were the uh, we were the team that figured it out. We played a uh, we played like a control deck that could kill it or whatever on like turn one. But the control deck also protected its partner's deck, which was Tooth and Nail. But the Tooth and Nail deck, if I remember the Tooth and Nail deck did this, or the control deck, I can't remember, one of them had black in it just so we could play Sickening Shoal for free from our hands. And when they would go to flip the Ryu, you'd be like, all right, Sickening Shoal, pitch a black card or whatever, kill your Ryu in response. And we got a lot of free wins that way because, you know, they're they're done at that point because their deck kind of sucks otherwise because yeah. <laughs> they're playing a bunch of Twiddles and stuff. But anyway, let's talk about this actual deck. One point before we get into it is, for me, Ryu is one of those cards that I have a lot of nostalgia for for some reason. Oh, for sure. And I've just, over the years, thought about it a lot more than I think most Magic players wanting to put it in decks and play it. Uh, so to see it, you know, performing well in a big event, and you may not recognize this uh, MTGO handle, Diablo XSC, but this is Mark Tobias. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know that when I first saw it. I actually just like happened to encounter a tweet that revealed this information to me. So, you know, this is a, a, a this is a person who's, you know, has several results. I can't name them off the top of my head, but I know the name. And I, I went to their Twitter account. They've been streaming a bit with it. So, uh, you know, good on them, putting their money where their mouth is, building this just awesome deck. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit so people can understand all the things that are going on in that because there's quite a bit of engines that are going on in here. By the way, I just looked it up on TCG Player. The price of Arayus are only around like five bucks, but I wonder how much it is on Magic Online. They're probably infinite or whatever, or especially yeah. if this deck takes off. Or but, impossible to find. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's the big thing is they're impossible to find. So uh, the deck has four Terry, uh, Teferi, Terry, Teferi Time Ravelers just because it's a good card in the colors. Uh, the also first a card engine that, box Amber. I think this is a, yep. this is a big Mox Amber deck. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, we'll get into that too. Uh, the first creature uh, that comes along that has an engine in itself is we have Emery Lurker of the Lock. And you have that along with the Mox Ambers and the Mishra's Bobbles, with a few other things. We'll get into uh, there's some more zeros, there's injury explosives, and a few things like that. We saw so, decks like this, you know, a year ago take over modern with Mox Opal and Oko and Urza. So these cheap artifacts should be somewhat familiar to you if you've played modern for a while. And this is a deck that's like, you know, we don't have Opal anymore, so we really have to take advantage of Mox Amber. And this deck is, is trying to do that and appears to have done so successful. Another card to maybe jump on is Mox Amber because it's another card that's been on the fringes of being broken for quite a long time. Um, also going along with the uh, the Emery Lurker of the Lock combo, there is a Manamo School Waters Edge in here. This is a legendary land from Kamigawa, all of which were kind of like looked over when the set came out and they've all been very good and expensive at some point in time in their in their yeah, in their lifespan you know, back in the day in standard like almost every deck would play one of every color you know whatever colors they were playing they would have one of each of those because they're legendary yeah. lands and you know there was no sort of blood moon in that format or you know there's not, nothing really punishing you for playing on basics so it was just kind of free and you would occasionally get some value like okina occasionally pump something let you attack and Shinka, you know, I think Shinka's first strike, Shizo's death touch, Manama on taps, Okina's plus one plus one, and a John Joe was prevent two damage. Yeah, it was prevent two damage. Yeah. I think one of them, uh, yeah, I think it gave fear as well. I think there might have been some different ones too. I know there's like Hall the Bandit Lord gave gave haste. I don't I don't remember all of them. Anyway, uh, Manamo is just it's it's an island yeah. for all intents and purposes. Untapping, it's a legendary land. Kind of the most busted one if you can make it work. Which right? one? Un- untapping like seems like the most you know potential yes. for being broken. Yeah, so that's what that's what this one is. It's just a legendary land that taps for a blue. There's no drawback. There's no like pay two life comes into play tap nothing like that. But you can pay a blue and tap Manamo to untap a legendary team. permanent. The drawback is it's a legendary, but when you only play one, it's not really a drawback at all. Yeah, exactly. But getting to untap Emery in, in a turn seems like something I'd be very interested in, and just bringing back multiple zeros, yeah. you know, from my yard. Whether it's Let's talk about the stuff with card with baubles, or being able, like, being able to bobble and get like an interactive artifact, like engineer explosives, or something, or mox amber and recoup some mana and start building more mana, or or, or just getting extra spells. Uh, it's just free value. Yeah, and so like like you said, there's mox amber, uh, Mister's bobble, there's engineer explosive, there's also an aether spell bomb and a soul guide lantern in the main deck to kind of get some cool stuff to go in there. And there's some spell skites in here too to kind of make sure that you can protect some of your combo because, like I said, you want to be able to protect a Ryu in the matchups where it's a little more fragile possibly. And then there's another creature in here that's got an engine built around it because since you're playing all these spells kind of for free and they're cheap and they're doing a lot of cool stuff, this you've got to have a monastery mentor in here. And there's four monastery mentor in here and. We were talking about the the capabilities of this, you know, prior to the show because these decks are always cool and fun. And you've played them before, and sometimes they don't really close the door quick enough for, for my taste. And Monastery Mentor can close a door really, really fast in this deck. Yeah, when you have all these zeros, when you have Emery to recur the zeros, so sometimes you don't even need the zero in your hand. You know, you you mm-hmm. activate your Emery, target your zero in your graveyard, cast your Mentor next. Then as soon as it resolves. You can you know, cast the zero from your graveyard with the Emery, at least get one monk token. Maybe you can do even more than that. So I completely agree. I think that's an important part of a deck like this is having a creature that can really close the game. You know, Emery is your generate card advantage grind out. Arayo is your disrupt you, make sure your deck isn't humming card. And then Mentor is the let's get the game fucking over with threat. Yeah. So you can and cover so- all of your bases. And so there's some really cool stuff going on with these 12 creatures, which are like the core of the deck. Like this is the engine the deck goes around. 
And this is an unearthed deck as well. And we've seen decks like that come up last few years, like the last year since year and a half since Unearth got printed into into modern. And I've been a big fan of all of these so far. Unearth on a Monastery Mentor is really cool. So obviously the deck's gonna play Thought Scour because of Emery, because of Unearth. It just helps out a lot. It's also another cheap spell to help yeah. keep churning through the deck. Help and then I wanted mentor, to talk you know, Cantor for Rio, like cheap mm-hmm. cantrip's great, and you use the graveyard. So Thought Scour. Yeah, I want to talk about one want. Yeah, I want to talk about one more cheap cantrip that's really cool in this deck the more and more I think about it. The deck has four repeal in it. So here's a cool thing. Repeal is a very, uh, very good card for a lot of reasons in the fact that it's very versatile. So it's X and a blue return target, non-land permanent or converting mana cost X or uh, with cost X to its owner's hand draw card. So this really, is pretty cool. You really could actually that you felt the need to explain what repeal does it's, for our audience. It's really old. So, I, I understand uh, why, but I just hate how old I am. <laughs> and, and here's why I like this card in this deck a lot. It also says draw a card on it, which is the big, big selling deal. So this card's really cool in the fact that this gives you a lot of play in whatever game that you're playing it in, because if your opponent does have a card that's actually a problem, maybe stopping you from going off or whatever, you have repeal for it. But this also is just one blue mana, draw a card, start my engine all over again with something like Mox Amber, Mishra's yeah. Bobble, Engineer. You can with also Mox play Amber, zero mana because you get to recoup the mana from the Mox. You, you get to recoup it. the mana. Yeah, you, you can kind of go off of Mox Amber in this card and like grow all of your Monastery Mentor tokens, make more of them. Like it's kind Ohio. of like a mini overrun. You can do some stuff for Ayu. Really cool thing that you can do is you can play an Injured Explosives early for zero to make sure that you get Emery out very quickly. Then you can do the, I re, I'll repeal it so I can replay it for, you know, one or whatever, two or I three. Need to deal with your shit. Yeah, whatever I need. So when I looked at it, I saw that there was three Thought Scour and four repeal. Immediately my mind was like, oh, I'd maybe want it the other way around because I want Thought Scour in this deck. And you know me, I love yeah. Thought Scour morning. But, but the more I thought about repeal in this deck, I'm like, it's genius. This card is absurd in this deck and just very, very good. And this is also a deck that's going to have so many cards that are devoted to its own engine that you don't have a, a, a lot of space for interaction. Yes, so exactly. getting a card that serves both purposes really really nice so you know repeal important part of, of transforming Arayo early on earth helps you do it too you know when you when you mill the Arayo with an emery you know i could easily see you having like turn one bobble amber emery uh you know mill over an Arayo, turn two unearth Arayo, you know repeal the the mocks replay the mocks use emery transform Arayo in a hand where you didn't even start with it. Yeah. You know, there's a, there, and I'm sure if you sat down, like you could come up with hundreds of different, you know, sequences that get you to those early Arayos, all slightly different, but using, you know, similar sequence, sequences of cards. So there's so much redundancy here and that's going to really uh, give you a level of consistency that you need with cards like this that are like are kind of hit or miss. Like if you don't flip the Arayo, it sucks. But yeah, it's so just horrible. This really yeah. high level of consistency to make it work, and this deck seems like it has all the pieces to put that into place and really make you consistent. I think you would have to get very unlucky to have an Arayo draw, where like you have a draw with Arayo in your hand and you not be able to flip it like consistently. You'd have to have, and it had to involve a lot of mulligans in some way, or a lot of creatures. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of creatures, there's one more card I wanted to mention to kind of you know pull all together. There's a there's a copy of Luris of the Dream Den in here, just another good engine card that can kind of recoup a lot of like, hey, you've been gr- you've been grinding through. You they finally kill the last piece of you, you know, what you're doing. And you're like, oh, I don't really have much going on. It's another card that can kind of restart everything from there and do some some pretty cool stuff and keep you drawing more cards off like your Mishra's Bobbles. You know, it's just another Emery or another kind of. Uh, way to get back spells guy and stuff like that in the games that are really important i know um i, I want to touch the mana base for like two seconds 
I, I love the fact that it gets to play a lot of the uh, new Horizon lands, like it's got Waterlogged Grove and Silent Clearing. So just a lot of ways to make sure that you're drawing a lot of extra cards in your deck. You're not drawing too many lands. This gives you a fourth color as well to go into your engine explosives. That's a big, big deal. That's the one thing I noticed, the Waterlogged Grove helping you there. You know, you would think, like, why would I want to play that? It's just kind of an island. But not only you know do you get the power of the Horizon land, but that fourth color for EE can definitely, you know, when it shows up, you're going to be really happy. And I know that something else that made you really happy was, and I got to love just the cleanness and how impactful and great it looks to me is this sideboard looks amazing. Yeah. And normally I'm a, I'm a fan of diversifying my sideboard, especially in a format like modern, but with a deck like this, that has such a, a straightforward, powerful, proactive plan, that's when your sideboard tends to homogenize more. Uh, and you just want, you know, just sort of sub in other powerful cards and, you know, Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, cards that we often see in main decks, four copies of each in, in this deck's sideboard. They're going to be great. You know, you have the Thoughtseize for combo decks, Fatal Push for creature decks, obvious when you're bringing them in, but really, really effective here. The Ether Gust for Primeval Titan decks, three copies there. So that's your, you know, pretty easy 11 card start. Two more Soul Guide Lanterns for Graveyard decks. One more Spell Skite. That's probably like the most questionable card, but it makes sense. It's, it's going to be really good against Prowess decks. You know, any, anything burn heavy. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And then the one copy of Jace, you know, with Mox Amber, you can accelerate it out. You can cast Jace as early as turn two, turn three in any matchup where you're really trying to grind. It turns on Mox Amber itself if you need to do that. And you just use your cantrips to you know, make four land drops. So just that one copy of this really uh, sort of haymaker threat that is right at the top of, of your curve. Like you wouldn't want anything that costs five in a deck like this with the only 19 lands. So... All, uh, just every slot in this deck makes so much sense to me. Uh, nothing, no slot feels wasted. You know, I initially questioned the one copy of Tassiger that's in the main deck, but it's an extra, uh, you know, uh, an extra legendary creature from Ox Amber. It's cheap, you know, works well with all of your mill effects. So it, even that just makes a lot of sense. There's so much sort of internal synergy going on with all of the pieces here. And I love all of the cards. I it, It's hard for me to like a deck more than this one. It really, is. Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to stress a little bit more on how much I enjoy looking at this deck and like it, it being my kind of jam. Where if we were going to have to play in an SCG event, like a team event, sometime soon, I would bar you from playing other decks. I'd be like, <laughs> test this until you can prove to me that it's not good. <laughs> Tell me this deck, and yeah, most of the time it's the other way around. It's like prove to me the deck, the prove yeah. to me that, or you can't play it until you prove to me it's good. Now it's yeah. you are playing this. So you prove yeah. to me it's bad. Yeah, prove prove me otherwise. Like, tell me why we shouldn't play. You know, you're like, oh, I just think this other thing's busted, and it beat. You know, and then it better be able to beat this damn thing. But, uh, but yeah, this seems like a deck just poised for you know getting picked up by uh, some of the better players. This kind of reminds me of something that we've seen a lot in modern over the few years, where like we have our our decks right that are always there. You know, the primeval titan decks. You know, in Valakut and the and prowessy decks. The Prowessy decks, you know, uh, land, Uro, not Blue land. Soup, Mystic Sanctuary decks. Blue Soup, yeah, yeah. But then, like, every every now and then, something cool and new. It, happens, it seems to happen, like, once every six months to a year. We have some deck like this come up where, like, it's just a cool deck that, you know, interjects into here. And maybe this isn't even the final form of the deck. Maybe at some point they realize, oh, you don't actually need Arayo. I'm not saying that's going to happen. You get what I'm saying. Or you don't actually need Emery in the deck, which, again, I, I don't see that happening, but... I can see someone, you know, trying out different things in this, maybe trying out different color combination kind of thing, you know, like, oh, maybe we don't need the white as much or something. I don't, I don't know, you know, but something like this happens every year. And I always get really excited when I see these because it's really cool that 
in 2020, whatever you want to say about the year, but like there hasn't really been a lot of modern this year, right? We've had a lot of standard, a lot of historic because of just, you know, we can't really get out. We can't really play magic. We're playing a lot online and arena is the way to play to see something new show up in a format like this. And I actually firmly believe that this deck is going to be good and probably be here to stay for at least a little while. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see multiple big names playing this in the, in the big events coming up in the next few weeks yeah. or some big streamer. Like, can you imagine if Canister started streaming with this? Like how, like I remember the first time he streamed with um, the, the Gristle brand. Uh, what was it? The, the Allosaurus Rider. I couldn't think of the name, the Allosaurus Rider deck. I immediately went to my LGS and just bought them out of all the cards. He, he four ones on stream with it. I just immediately went and bought them all. Cause I was like, cause you know, when he streams with it, it's going to go nuts. Like people are, you know, like a, a game to see some well with it, you know, or yeah, a, aspiring spike, you know, one of those players will get a hold of this and play it for a little bit. And I'm not saying anything bad about the person, you know, nothing is the person who streams it now. They're just not as big of a name streamer sure. as, you know, the people that are getting thousands you know of I saw views. streaming it literally today. Yeah. I was gonna say, I'm going to have to, you're gonna have to show me after the, the, the show who this person is. Cause I'm going to go back and watch the VODs. I, I, I want to see this. Yeah. It wasn't a thief. Yeah. Okay, I didn't. I, I didn't. Taking it easy, playing some modern before the the ZNR champs, and he was yeah. just streaming this deck. I think he four won the first league and was one one when I stopped watching in the second league. So five two, pretty good. Speaking of that, speaking of the Zendarka Championship, let's go ahead and just segue right into that. That's the big thing that's going on this weekend. Um, you're having a lot of the best players in the world. We're going to be seeing this this weekend. Ross, why don't you tell us the, the structure of the tournament, like what's going on this weekend? Yeah, so they're going to play uh, seven rounds on day one. Four wins gets you into day two. Eight rounds on day two. Twelve total wins across those 15 will get you into the top eight for Sunday. So day one's Friday, day two Saturday. Each day is split half and half. I can't remember which one is four and three on day one, but it's four and four on day two. I, I assume it's eight rounds standard, seven rounds historic, um, but it, it might be eight, seven the other way, approximately half and half. And, and, you know, that's how it goes. As soon as you get the number of wins you need to lock up your, you know, birth in the next day, you stop playing. I love the way that, that they do that now. So you don't have people that are, you know, incentivized by the structure of the tournament to concede their matches. Um, so uh, awesome that they're continuing that. They'll play a double elimination top eight. But essentially, you know, all eyes are going to be on standard and historic for this weekend. Because this is a, sort of our analog of the Pro Tour now. This is the first time that they, you know, they announced this new organized play system months ago. This is the first of these big events. You know, we've got the call time championship that's going to be coming up several months from now. But this is the first one. I'm excited to see, you know, a real Pro Tour uh, kind of event. I've enjoyed the smaller events, you know, the rival splits and MPL splits and things like that. The, you know, season championship, whatever they called it, grand finals. Yeah, I think it was grand finals. You know, the, the smaller events are cool because, you know, every round is just really high level, great players. These events are cool because, one, I I personally am connected with more of the people playing. Yeah, and, this one feels more like a PT. Yeah, and two, yeah. like, that that caliber of people is, is sort of where I am. Like, the you know, I've played probably a dozen or so Pro Tours in my life, uh, in my career, you know, never really broke through to consistently playing them. But every pro tour, you see somebody at who is you know at that level doing really well, making having that breakthrough performance, and you get the, those narratives, those storylines for the weekend. So I'm excited to see you know who it is uh, for this weekend, and, and you know root them on. And I've got to say, for a, a, an event like this that is happening very late in the standard season, 
We're going to start getting previews, you know, a month from now for call time. And with Historic as well, you would expect both formats to be kind of stale, but they aren't. Standard has been remarkably dynamic uh, late into the season since the bans. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people singing Standard's praise lately. Like a lot of people are saying that quietly, this is actually a really cool, diverse, fun format. Yeah, yeah really, really. And, and, you know, for the people testing it, difficult for them. It's not just, a, you know, pick the broken deck and tune for the mirror kind yeah. of thing. Or which, even, which is what we've been having for the last year and a half, it feels like. so. Yeah, it's not even like a, there are three decks, you know, pick the one you want to play and tune for the other two. There's probably five or six and there's different builds of them. You know, there's right now the 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 big one, I think, and the one I, I expect to be the most played is Mono Green Food. That's been a, a big deck for the last couple of weeks. There's still Gruel Adventures around. I expect those two to be one and two, and I wouldn't be surprised if Gruel is number one, but I'm going Mono Green. There's like seven different ways to build a Demir decks. You know, you could be Rogues, you could be not Rogues. Within Rogues, you could be Luris, you could be Shark Typhoon, you could be, you know, Xerath Sand, all these different cards. Uh, there, or you can just be the non-rogues build that like, builds up to Ugin. There's teamer ramp decks. You could be adventuring or not adventuring in those. When you're adventurers, you could be oboshing or not oboshing as a companion. There is... Yeah. Uh, I've seen know. that, and I was like, I completely forgot that that was a thing you could do. And I was like, yeah. oh, it just makes sense in that deck. You want to go one three five seven anyway. Like, yeah. There, there's, you know, Esper Yorian still kind of around, but that's dropped off recently. There's a Marty Yorian deck that is, you know, picked up a little bit. There's also Mono Red that, that's sort of around and being a little cheeky in, in recent events. I see there's one in the top four of the last weekend's Call Time Championship Qualifier that SCG ran. Uh, so a lot of different decks around even very late into the season. And certainly, you know, if you had asked me a month ago what this tournament was going to look like, I would have told you 20 to 30% Girl Adventures, you know, 20% Demir Rogues, 20% Esper Yorian, and a bunch of nonsense. And the format has continued to really evolve since then, in particular with the, the non-rogue version of Demir Control and Mono Green Food being the, the major players from those recent emerging decks. And a decline... Oh, and, and Team of Ramp, actually. I, I can't be remiss in that. So those three, and then a significant decline in both rogues versions of Demir and Espriorian. So really a, a lot of, of advancement and evolution in the metagame happening over the last month or so. So, uh, you know, a surprisingly... Uh, good format to watch for this weekend when I know a lot of the recent events that Watsi has run have been in pretty stale formats. You know, now that you said this, I was thinking about it. I need to find out the legality issues behind it, but I might restream that event this weekend and just have people hang out, you know, just like sit there and chill and talk to chat while, while watching the yeah, event. Yeah, I, I don't know what they're allowing and not allowing for that. Sometimes they allow it, sometimes they don't. I might send an email and see what happens because if that happens, maybe you and I can get on for a few hours and hang out and drink a little bit and watch show you know have a little fun sounds like a good plan i i enjoy those things <laughs> yeah i wanted i wanted to ask you a question so you, you talked about you know you've got some friends in this it feels kind of like a pt let's say you qualified for this ross what would you what would you play and 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 almost more importantly what would you avoid playing this weekend so my the deck that i'm really high on for this weekend is teamer uh you know uh noriyuki mori went 13 and 0 winning the SCG call Night championship qualifier last weekend, uh, which is, you know, an incredible performance, but more importantly, you know, it, even if it, you know, uh, just in general, I think this deck is very well positioned because what has happened in the metagame is the creature decks are at the top. Like I said, I, I expect mono green and gruel to be the most played decks. Uh, and those decks are very good 
in particular mono green, because it can be aggressive, but it can also grind a little bit. Gruul is a little bit worse than that, but it does have Embercleave to just close games. But the mono green deck with, you know, being the, I think it's the best Great Henge deck. Great Henge, obviously great at grinding. You still have Vivian's, you, you have that stuff, but the uh, you have the addition of Trail of Crumbs as this other just incredible attrition uh, element to the deck. And so with mono green food emerging, I don't want to be attacking the creature decks by playing removal and card advantage, that traditional control game that all the Demir decks are doing, because these decks are very good at grinding, but they're not very good at interacting. Mono Green has Wicked Wolf in the main, and basically no other creature removal. You know, the sideboard Primal Mide or some of these other options, they've got more removal in the board, but main deck is just Wicked Wolf. Even those sideboard like cards, you know, aren't great at dealing with other really big creatures. So what I want to be doing against the creature decks that exist right now in the standard metagame is going over the top of them. Because, you know, with a, a little bit of decline in Gruul and an increase in Monogreen, Monogreen doesn't clock you quite as hard. You still love Stark Beast yourself because Andu Mammoth, but you don't have those, like, two, three, four Ember Cleave kind of draws, the really fast um, Brushfire Elemental kind of draws with uh, Fable Passage. There's just less pressure overall on your life total. So you have a little bit more time to set up with something like Cultivate or uh, Furl Footsteps. So I like the way the teamer decks are positioned to go over the top with Genesis Ultimatum. And then you sort of have the option of, do I want to adventure with Obosh or do I want to kind of go all the way up to Ugin? I prefer to adventure because you get the ability to be a mid-range deck against the Demir decks. You know, you have the Edgewall Innkeeper draws that just draw a bunch of cards. You play some cheap creatures and pressure them. I also think Terror of the Peaks is, you know, Almost just as good as Ugin against the creature decks. Terror of the Peaks it's, just fucks. Yeah, it's off. really, really good. So uh I like the the team or adventure style ramp decks, I think are very well positioned for the metagame that I'm expecting. You know, I'm not as in tune as the people that are testing for this event, so maybe my metagame prediction is off. But given my expectations, I think the team or decks are really well positioned for this weekend. The deck I would avoid is um personally I've just always disliked rogues. Same, yeah. I think that there's just so much needs to go right for all your pieces to come together to make your cards really powerful. And the fact that everybody just sideboards a bunch of escape cards is really rough. Uh, and normally, you know, control decks get better after sideboarding, right? Because uh, you just get to, you know, figure out how exactly you need to react to your opponent. But when everybody brings in escape cards, you, you lose that advantage, and that's really critical. But I'm thinking that, like, it could end up being a sneaky good decision to play rogues if everyone else is thinking like that because then i think you're going to see a lot of the escape cards get cut from sideboards so like oh, i need more ways to match up against mono green more ways to match up against ramp decks you know uh, and other things in the metagame and you know more you know i can't have my anti-control card be chain web spider chain web arachnir when i'm playing against ugin out of the demir decks instead of yeah. playing against rogues so i you know I, I need something better there and if that's what people do then it's possible that Demir Rogues could really overperform, but that's a really, really risky bet. So uh, that's something I'm going to be watching for is like when the, we're going to get the metagame data on the 4th on Thursday from Frank Karsten, and then the event starts Friday, or on the 3rd, um, and the event starts Friday. And I'm interested to see, you know, I guess we're not going to see Deckless, though. we, we got to see Deckless. They're, they're going to get released on uh, once the tournament starts, uh, round one. But when we see all the deck lists, like I'm going to have them up on the other screen looking through them. 
how many escape cards do people have? How many escape cards does everybody have? And then if, if they don't, it's possible that Demir Rogues ends up being really good. But to me, like, that's just too big of a risk. You know, maybe I'm a little bit too risk averse, but I, I'm I'm in on Teamer, down on Rogues, also somewhat down on Gruul. I think Gruul just, like, you don't it's have any tricks target. left. It's adapted a little bit over the course of the, the entire standard season. But in the last couple of weeks, it just, it it's out of, out of tricks. Everybody knows what you're doing. Everybody's prepared for you. So I just, I don't think, I think the deck is powerful enough that it has a pretty high floor. And I think somebody will do well with it. I think one person, I'm expecting one in the top eight, but I think its overall record is going to be bad. Uh, and I just, I, I don't really see the upside of playing it over even something like Monogreen Food that people are still expecting. For me, um, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I think you're pretty spot on. I would want to be doing one of two things, but I think the best thing to be doing is to be a good Great Hinge deck. I think the Great Hinge is quietly, uh, maybe not even quietly, the best card in Standard and probably the most impactful card in Standard right now. I feel that I beat a lot of these decks way, way, way higher on average and way easier when they don't have their Great Hinge draws. And then when they have their Great Hinge draws and I can't do anything about it, I feel like I can't win at that point. So this card is very, very good. So I'd be playing a good, great hinge deck this weekend. And when it comes down to it, you're looking at the three decks, the three main decks that play it, right? You're looking at Gruul, Mono Green Food, and Teamer Ramp, right? And I kind of lump Adventure, uh, Gruul, and Mono Green Food into the same kind of, they are a creature deck. They are playing creatures. They are playing the great hinge. And they are attacking you. But when I look at Teamer Ramp, they have that part of the deck, right? Like they still have Lovestruck Beasts. They still have these creatures that are good and they can attack you or they can block in the in the matchups where they need to be blocking. But they have this robust end game that you talk about. You know, you mentioned this Genesis Ultimatum going way over the top, Terror of the Peaks going way, way over the top in some of these turns because I think it's underappreciated how much the extra two mana from the Great Hinge gets you because like if you do the nuts where you go like Lovestruck Beast into three, Great Hinge on four, play your fifth land. You now have seven mana. And like, it's actually pretty big sometimes to be able to go Terror of the Peaks into like is there a, a creature. Is there a really important card in the Team of Ramp deck that costs seven mana? Yeah, Genesis Ultimatum. Yeah. Oh, okay, so, okay. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think it's, I think it's, you just, if you're going to be like a Great Hinge deck, you need to be better in the in the mirrors of the Great Hinge mirror and you need to be able to go over the top. And I've got to think the Team of Ramp deck is the way to go. Here's the thing. I was jokingly going to say decks to avoid this weekend would be Team of Ramp. Because every time I play the deck, I cannot win with this deck. <laughs> I just cannot. Like, I think I'm messing up a lot. I find myself, like, fetching for the wrong land sometimes or cultivating for the wrong land sometimes and realizing, oh, no, now I just made it very awkward for me to cash in this ultimatum two turns from now or three turns from now, you know, and stuff like that. So just little things. I do think that the the new list all playing spike field hazard is a big deal because you want to be able to kill Edgewall Innkeeper in a yeah, lot of the matches. Brush just slow Elemental. Yeah, Brushfire Elemental. Just, Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to slow your opponent down a little bit, because here's the thing. The, the the reason the Team of Ramp deck is good is it's doing a lot of what the other decks are doing, but it's doing it faster, right? It's just got more mana as the game goes on. Like, Gruul's probably going to have a better start 1, 2, 3, 4 on the first couple of years. Turns 5, 6, and 7 in that matchup, if they're not dead, Team of Ramp is going to bury you yeah. in that matchup. You know, do something very powerful, so... Um, you know, my versions of the deck that I was playing with from, you know, a few weeks ago, they didn't really have Spike Phil Hazard to kind of slow down your opponent a little bit. And the fact that it's just a land, too, it's just, I I can't stress enough how good these cards are, I've, these modal cards. I've loved Spike Phil Hazard from the mm -hmm. moment I saw it. And knew have it you heard what Todd Anderson 
says about it. He thinks it's one of the best card, red cards ever printed. Okay, that's going like overboard. in the last in the last like tenish years. He's saying it's it's like it's high up there. That's still going overboard. We don't see the card being played in modern and, and older formats. If you if you're saying just for standard, even that might be overboard. But I could entertain that conversation. I do think it's one of the cooler, more powerful cards that's printed in a long time. I, I know that when when I first built a mono red aggro deck for this season. I was playing four spike fields and four uh, Torb, and I was really like taking advantage of that synergy. I haven't Just seen Red people. do that, and I wonder if people are mi- are missing out there because I've not really tried Red since then. Uh, but I love me some spike field hazard. Love to see it here. The one thing I will say is that if if your number one goal is to be to take advantage of the Great Henge, Mono Green is the best Great Henge deck. I, yeah, no, I, I can agree with that. I'm saying I want to have the yeah. best deck that takes advantage of Great, great Hedge. Yeah, which is slightly different. Yeah, but sorry, I, I might have misspoke there. No, so no. I just wanted to, my, to clarify that point. Yeah, of course. For everybody there. I figured that that's where you were. But I just want to tempt you for a second with the idea of casting the Great Hedge and then sacrificing three food to return Feasting Troll King. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I've... against Corey, and then you start like, you know, Generating an actually, what I did was I I did that with the Great Hedge when I was like pretty far behind. This is on versus live this week, and then drew Gilded Goose, had the mana to cast it, got an extra food, had an extra Witch's Oven, and was had the I ended up choosing not to, but I had the option to sack the Troll King for two more food and return it to draw another card and start looping pretty much. I thought I. I reasoned it out live and was like, no, it's better for me to just hold up this witch's oven. Mm. But it was a disgusting turn. And yeah, I, I think mono green food is uh, t- to to borrow from Yeoman Five, one of our you know one of the people that's in our Discord a lot, and he writes for TCG Player uh, decks that people will not. Uh, what's the word he always uses? Respect. Respect. The decks people won't respect but should. I think mono green food is at the top of that list. I think the deck is much better than it looks on paper, and it I, plays I out really well. I think that was true two weeks ago, but people are respecting it now. They're starting to, yeah. yeah. I'm I expect a little behind. this weekend for it to be respected, but I also think the deck is just quite good. Mono green food is kind of... Mono green food to me is my like default baseline safe choice. If I didn't have a deck that I really liked and had really strong reasons for liking, this is the deck I would fall back on. So... To, to kind of answer my own question from earlier, though, since, since we're, we're talking about this, uh, I think my choice for this weekend would be Team of Ramp along with you, possibly. But then, honestly, I wouldn't be able to win anything with it, so I would register Demir Control. And you want, like, the Ugin and no, no Rogue? I Not not Rogues. Uh, again, I'm with you. I think I do think that deck is fine. It could have a you know, chance to be a very good choice this weekend if, like, the metagame lines up correct for it. I would not have the balls to make, <laughs> yeah. to make that pick. Even I, though I completely agree. It, if you look at some of the decks that I have chosen for for constructed protors, I sometimes have just been like, "Fuck it, roll the dice." Like play a deck that might be really good this weekend or might be really bad, you know. So, yeah, I will say that you know, I guess a lot of the time when when we've played together or when you were on BCW, you know, you were playing the same decks very frequently. It was you know the the Deathray Chaman Delver deck in Legacy, it was Tron in Modern, uh, and those are the you know sort of the two main formats that you played. But when we've talked about deck choices and things, you don't show a lot of fear. Like you're you're not scared to play an out there deck if you really have the conviction behind it and you think it's good. Uh, a lot of people do do have that fear. Um, I think I, I'm I think I'm good along that axis, but you're you're better. Like you you were you have that, and it's a lot of sort of confidence in yourself that gets you to that point where you're just like, no, like I really do think this deck is good. I'm gonna go for it. 
it, when you get the fear, it's usually because you're thinking of like, oh, uh, what happens if I go like 0-2 and everybody's just going to fucking laugh at me for playing this joke of a deck? I, I couldn't care just, less. <laughs> yeah, you just don't care about that. I'll just fly home. <laughs> yeah, I'll just fly home. We'll just get the <laughs> yeah. fuck out of there. Yeah. And, you know, it's when you say that, real quick, thanks. I appreciate the, the compliment, if that was one. But, it was, uh, it was. I yeah, know it's course. rare for me to compliment you, Tannen, but that that was a, a sincere compliment. Um, they're, um, I'm blinking on the poker player's name right now, and God rest his soul, we lost him a few years ago, and I, I just forgot his name, but he was uh. He was a lot the, on TV. the announcer was the guy who died recently, right? They've, they've had a few people pass in the, in the last like five or ten so years. We're getting to that point. A lot, of, we're a lot of, of World yeah. Series announcing Mike something. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is that yeah, not Mike you Sexton? Were talking about? Mike Sexton. No, I'm not, not I'm talking about him. This was a, this was a guy that was mostly just a player. He was big during like the moneymaker years when that kind of happened, like early mid 2000s, the height of the poker boom. And um, he had this quote that always stuck with me. That's it's, it's really big into poker, but it helps a lot into games like this because there's a lot of correlations. And he said, um, when, especially when it comes to tournaments, in order to live, you have to be willing to die. And what he meant by that is you can't just play safe all the time, right? Like you can't just, you know, make these baseline, whatever. Like, to be right, you have to be willing to be wrong. Like if you want to win a tournament, obviously they're like, let's not talk about like, I'm, I should always play Delver, right? If legacy, if the deck is remotely good in legacy, I should always play Delver, right? But like when it comes to modern, right? When it comes to standard, like a lot of the times you're rewarded for making the hard choice in your deck. We talk about Demir Rogues this weekend and it, there's a sneaky chance that that is the deck to play yeah. this weekend. And, and you know, when I think of that, I, I think of the history of the players championship. I don't think it was as true this last year with with Oliver Tomiko, but the first three years, that initial run of it, it, the people who did really well the first year were the people that played Sultai Whip in Standard, which was not a deck that was on, like everybody was Abzan whipping before then. Uh, but the Sultai deck had way better answers to Jeskai Ascendancy. And then the second year, Jim Davis won the entire thing playing the ramp deck in Standard that yeah. nobody expected. And then third year, Joe Lissette broke out the Electrostatic Pummeler deck that people didn't expect. So, you know, in people the, who were willing to make the risky choice and get, got paid off for it, who ended up doing the best. They didn't expect it, and they didn't res- respect it. Like, yeah. that was a big deal. So they're like, oh, this deck's gimmicky or not cool. Or it's, it's you would, you'd be like, oh, I'm too, I'm too good to play. I'm above playing that deck. And that's, there's a, there's an Emma Hando article about this, and she actually mentions me in it. So it's, I'm a little par- par- partial to it, but I got to find it and whatever. But uh, I looked it up. The, the, the player's name was Amir Vahidi. I don't know if you remember that name at all, but... So, uh, but yeah, he said, uh, in order to live, you must be willing to die. That is the direct quote. It was from 2003 in the World Series of Poker, but it's stuck with me since then. Um, I am a little more on the conservative side in poker than most of my friends, but it, it's an overall thing, not individual hand thing, you know, like kind of thing. Cause like, I, I'm not afraid to put my money in there. And like you said, when it comes to magic, I'm not afraid to put my money where my mouth is. And I, I've had some big, it's true just in general, right? Yeah. You know, just... I've had some, exactly. I've had some big misses. But I've also gotten some some really, really, really right. Like, you know, my first ever top eight, I was one of two people in the room to play a deck. And we both top eighted that open. And I lost to them who won the open. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, I think of one of my other standard top eights where I played mono blue shitters, whatever you want to call it, like the mono blue aggro deck where people kept dismissing it because you're playing like 13th pick, you know, limited cards in a constructed format. And I walked through that tournament. It was, I lost my first round and then like did lose again <laughs> or whatever, you know. With me, it was my, if I think about my open wins, my first one was Blue White Delver, but, you know, which was, you know, the number one deck, 
but what was popular at the time was playing the control sideboard plan. You would board some like yeah, half the this, gods yeah. and the, the, whatever six drop people wanted to play, it would change. It was often consecrated Sphinx, but I remember Sun Titan or maybe even Frost Titan, like just what you know, some big creature and some Wrath of Gods and like Timelies, and you would board into this like control deck. And I, you know, bombed the Envy and decided to just play a more aggressive version of Delver and won and open with it the next day that weekend. My second open win is with the same mono blue devotion deck, and I was playing at a time when nobody really was. If you remember, like mono blue really declined over the spring during Born of the Gods season. And, uh, you know, everybody was playing. It was a lot of monsters, it was a lot of mono black, and it was a lot of um, a lot of blue-white control. So monsters kind of supplanted mono blue. But we got to the point where the monsters deck was really popular, so I just started playing mono blue again to beat it. Uh, and was, you know, ar- was already pretty well-versed in the other matchups, and the deck was quite good. My third open win is with uh, Bant Heroic, a deck I had played zero games with before the tournament. And I made the decision to play it at 11 p.m. the night before uh, and was heavily paid off. Then, like, Dredge, before people knew Dredge was busted, you know, I made the decision to play it the same weekend as Tom and Todd, and Tom top it as well. Um, and then Arclight Phoenix, you know, the Is It Phoenix deck that I, that I built myself. So really, like, in all five of my wins, it's to varying different degrees, but I went out on a limb to some degree in all of them whether it was deck choice or how I built it or how I tuned it. Like, you know, I had to do something different uh, to, to really stand out from the crowd. There's a good quote from, um, I think it's from Daryl Morey, but maybe it's from, um, who was the architect of the process in Philadelphia? The guy that they basically forced out. Oh, I know you're talking about, I can't think of his name right now. though. Yeah. But yeah. I keep thinking Morey and Presti. I feel like this guy also has that kind of e-syllable in his name. Uh, but it, it's from this guy. It's from the, the guy that was the architect of the process of Philadelphia. And he basically said that, like, in order to actually, like, win, you have to do something different than what other people are doing. And you have to be right. <laughs> right? You know, you have to take the risk and be right. But that, uh, like, the fact that I'm often going to be wrong when I take the risk is, isn't going to deter me because I have to do that in order to, you know, get get the edge on everybody. So there's no point in doing everything everybody else is doing, uh, you know, it's so difficult to get an edge that way. You really got to take a risk. I'm kind of talking myself into advocating for Demir Rogues right now, by the way. Yeah, I, I saw I saw the slow descent into madness and in, in, in the, the, the the movement towards, well, well maybe, maybe, you know, kind of thing. I just idea that, like, people are going to cut their escape creatures, but, like, nobody's playing Rogues. And so this, this is how this happens. So everybody at home that doesn't, it hasn't been into the process of what we're talking about here. This is how it actually happens. This is, this is a live look in it <laughs> yeah. at where you're like, <laughs> Oh, I just made this crazy de- decision to, to play what might be the worst deck at the last minute because it might be the best deck, you know, kind of thing. And then, hey, he could be really right. He could be really wrong. Also, you could be really right. I've seen people make really good metagame choices before and still get punished because they got all the worst possible. You know, they played the one person uh, in the yeah, room that, playing. That's the like, worst. Yeah, the old version of this deck. And they're like, well, I just lost. And Oftentimes when you have the really right metagame call, it's important that you just escape the first few rounds having buys at SCG events yeah. is really big for that as well. Yeah, it really, and it affects my deck choice. And I'm, I assume you're the same there. Like knowing that you're not going to have to face the riffraff and the people that are probably behind the metagame really helps, you know, solidify the decision to take those risks and play the deck that you think is going to be well positioned for what does well. Because, you know, there's two different metagames in a Swiss magic tournament. There's the metagame from round one, that you see, you know, through most of day one, at least the first half of day one. 
And that is, you know, usually just things that did well last week, last week, or things that have been doing well, have some hype around them. That's the level zeros. And then there's the people that are doing well in that metagame, the level ones. But if you want to be do really well on day two, you got to be on level on level two. You got to be prepared for the level ones. And sometimes you can find the you know the stars align and you find a level two deck that still beats level zero. But oftentimes to be on level two, you got to sacrifice your matchup against level zero. And so when you're able to escape those rounds more easily because of buys or whatever reason, it makes it much easier to commit to being on level two. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um... I'm looking forward to this weekend. I don't really have a pick for Historic. I don't play the format very much. I don't understand very I would probably play something proactive and powerful. The format looks kind of like that kind of thing you should be doing. So I, I have two big opinions for the weekend. I wrote about them this week, that my article this week was all about my predictions for, for this tournament. And I don't like Goblins. I think Goblins is just a bad deck that is held together by the incredible power of Muxus as a magic card. I think without Muxus, the deck is obviously a steaming pile of garbage. And Muxus, everybody knows how to beat Muxus. There's a million cages around. Sometimes Muxus whiffs. It's not like you just cast Muxus and the game ends every time. It's you cast Muxus, hit an average or better Muxus, and take over. You know, you, you have a few other things that you can do, like Chieftain into Krenko can sometimes win. But for the most part, like, you're almost, you're all in on Muxus. And I just don't think that's good enough right now with everybody, you know, with it being such a known quantity and so easy to, to beat. There's a ton of sweepers around as well. The deck I think is sneakily good, and Ari wrote about it this week, is Azorius Godfarer's Gift. Yeah. I was surprised to see that deck do well in last week's uh, SCG Call Time Championship Qualifier, which was historic. Uh, there was somebody in the top eight with it. And not really, you know, a lot of the same cards from the old standard version, which was never, you know, a tier one deck in standard. I know Pascal Maynard lost the finals of a pro tour with it, but that was the one big finish the deck had. But the addition of Skyclave Apparition, which we've been, you know, singing its praises for weeks now, the card is fucking busted. And this deck uses Skyclave Apparition maybe better than any deck I've seen yet. <laughs> like, I think it's funny that it's making big waves in all these other formats and like it hasn't found an amazing home. Like the, the decks that have it in standard aren't super great. Yeah. Is the big problem, you know? There's no, you know, because like if you look at the best decks, you're looking at Teamer Ramp, Demir Control, Mono Green Food, and like Gruel Aggro, and none of those decks can cast that card. There's and a, so that's, that's, Adventures and like Mono White are both Tier Two and Standard. They're like on the fringe, but yeah, you know, it really that's probably the format where it's been at its worst. But still nice to have here in in, um, in Historic. I think it, both as a bridge card to help you know stall the game out when you don't have a fast. Godfarer's Gift Draw, when you're not able to like mill it over and refurbish on four. Uh, Skyclave Apparition is great, and also just a great card to return with Godfarer's Gift. It lets you, you already had the, I need to stabilize the battlefield, so I'll bring back a giant Vigilance Lifelink, you know, flyer with Angel of Invention. You already had Champion of Wits to bring back when you needed card advantage. Now you have the, I need to kill that thing that my opponent has card to bring back with your Godfarer's Gift. So that covers all your bases. It rounds the deck out really nicely. Also fits really well in the deck's curve. I think that deck also just, it, because it's so new, it has a lot of room to improve. I think you can get away from some of the weaker cards, you know, tune the sideboard better. So if it's already competing now, I think it has room to get even better. And then the fact that it's a graveyard deck that dodges the most powerful piece and most common piece of graveyard hate in the historic metagame, which is Godfarer's Gift. So not only do you do opposing Godfarer's Gifts do nothing to you, 
because all your eternalized and Godfather's gift stuff doesn't uh, get stopped by it, but you get to sideboard them yourself. So you get to stop opposing graveyard decks and Muxuses and collected companies and all of these things that are really common and play that great sideboard card uh, without having it disrupt your own engine. That's the deck that I think is a dark horse. I don't think it's going to be that popular, but I expect some people playing it to do well. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's going to be about it for the uh, Caledon Championship qualifier. I'm sorry, the... Uh, the Zendikar the Rising Championship. Zendikar Rising. I have the other one up on yeah. my screen. I said that one. The Zendikar Rising Championship. I knew it was wrong since I said it. Zendikar Rising Championship. And I think you mean the I'm, Cold Ham Championship qualifier? So Sure, whatever. It's pronounced Cold I am. I am Two very months. excited to watch the event this weekend. Um, in, we're going to look into possibly getting to watch it together and like whatever. If we could rebroadcast it, uh, we'll 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 tweet out from the uh, the Twitter account for MTG Rants. So we'll find that out. But um, for anyone who hasn't listened to it yet, we did put out a extra episode this week where we covered a lot of the over under rated stuff that's going on in our Discord. It's a section that goes in where someone can. Uh, the way this works, because I do see that some people might not 100% understand how this works, is you give us a topic, and we talk about why we think it's overrated or underrated. And it's very popular so far. Uh, so we had to do an entire episode to kind of try to catch up, and we're still not catching up. So <laughs> we're going to try to get a few more out of the way tonight and see what happens, and then maybe we have to do one more you know, full episode of it. In a we week will or get two. through them all eventually. Yes. We do skip one or two here or there because they don't either they're going to take too long. We don't want to talk about that on the show, or we don't think that we are the final arbiters. Okay. Yes. So if we skipped your thing, tough luck. Better luck next time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I wanted to go off and uh, start a few of those. The first one is from Gold. It's just double faced cards. So, in one sense, I think they are underrated, and that's in the sort of the design sense where i think they open up some mechanically interesting things and the downside of them and i'm sure you remember this too when we first saw double face cards with innistrad during that preview season everybody went nuts about how they were going to ruin limited and they didn't ruin limited they just added an extra wrinkle which was perfectly fine yeah it was very easily fixable yeah it wasn't it was even a pain in the butt it wasn't even something that needed to be fixed like i you know Essentially, at, at high-level drafts, what you would do, because every pack had, had a double-face card, is at the beginning of each pack, everybody would just hold up their double-face card for the table. And that's all you really had to do. I guess it, you were also required to keep your most recent pick on the top of your pile so yeah. that people could tell when you took a double-face card. And that was the only thing. So it, it just added a little more information to drafts, didn't ruin anything, and they open up mechanically interesting stuff. As far as the power level of them, especially the recent ones, which I think is another way to interpret this, uh, a little overrated, especially by me. I thought they were going to be more ubiquitous than they've ended up being. You know, they, they've seen play, but they haven't been, you know, tearing the world apart outside of the, you know, oops all spells and Belcher decks that they've enabled. 100% agree with you on, like, pretty much everyone's. I don't really have much more to add. Yeah, I'm smart and great. <clears throat> Dylan the Wizard, uh, watching MTG streams to learn and grow as a player. I've got to say that this is massively underrated. This is a good way to learn how to be a better player. It also depends on who you're watching, obviously, but let's just assume that the person you're watching is educational in some way or that you can garner some education from them and gleam some education from them while watching the way they play because watching someone else make plays that's either better than you or different from what you're doing and understanding why is a big way to get better at a game because there's almost never... Not everything is cut cut and dry black and white in magic and there's a lot of times where you need to understand why someone did something different the way you're going to do it 
and streamers like to explain why they're doing what they're doing or what they were thinking. And they'll also explain their mistakes, you know, like, oh, I messed up here and here's what I should have done instead. And here's why they'll walk you through sideboarding, stuff like that. So I think this is massively underrated in a big level up that you might not be doing with your game and that you definitely should be looking into if you want to get better. I agree, especially on the, the important parts that you made. Like, I think it's really important to be exposed to different ways of thinking and different approaches and watching streams helps you do that. Uh, I'm not sure that it's 100%, like, in some streams, it's hard to interact directly with, with the streamer, especially if, if they have, like, thousands of viewers. And the right? chat's just scrolling. Yeah, like, your comment yeah. can get buried. So it's actually easier with some smaller streamers to get more direct interaction with them, which can be helpful. But it's also, I think, it, if you're just watching a major stream, especially from a really good player, and you see things that are awkward, if you you can document them and just talk over the plays with, you know, your friends, your playtest group, that can also be really helpful. I think the, the important part is exposure to new approaches and new ideas and then talking through it. You don't necessarily have to talk it through with the streamer, though that is obviously you know very helpful because they know where they're coming from. But if, if that's not possible, just talking through those things with other people around you that you have more access to, your friends and testing uh, partners, also really important. But there's really no replacing like exposing yourself to different ideas, and streams are a great way to do that. Mm, absolutely. So the next was from KFET. National Lampoon's Christmas. I feel like I've seen the first one of these, but I don't, I, it's not memorable to me at all. And when I think of like the pantheon of 80s comedy movies, it does not rank very highly. So I'm going to go with overrated. I'm going to go with neutral. I think it's, I think it's funny. It's good for a view like once a decade kind of thing. So, but it's probably not at the level or... of, you know, Ghostbusters, Caddyshack, Animal House, which is late seventies, but you know, similar SNL it felt like an 80s movie yeah um uh, like meatballs airplane um there's one i'm missing whatever yeah Yeah, it's just it's just not there i don't know also like just knowing how much of a dick chevy chase is it's it's hard it's easier for him to ruin that movie than it is for him to ruin caddyshack even though he's like ostensibly a major part of caddyshack yeah all right, so the next, Zeth4, putting out podcasts on a consistent day of the week. Obviously very overrated. Yeah, massively overrated. Yeah, who, who does that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Big Blue 7-Eleven asks classical music. So I don't particularly like classical music, but I'm going to go with underrated. I think most people, you know, completely ignore it. The I, I can enjoy it from time to time. But I get so much of my enjoyment from music out of the lyrics of a song. Like a huge portion of my enjoyment is out of the lyrics. And so it's hard. Like the classical music just doesn't do it for me when it's almost entirely instrumental. I got to say, I got to say, I agree with all that. And then it's, it's probably, I got to say underrated because of how low I have it personally rated that it can only be underrated at this point. If you incorporate like classical elements, you know, and you, if you take some inspiration to like Bach and, and, you know, whoever, and incorporate that into more modern music with actual lyrics, I usually find that really compelling. Same. Uh, So again, like underrated for that reason, but just it by itself, it's not for me. All right, what's next? We have Massimo with Taking a Walk. I think this is massively underrated. Yeah, just moving. You know, as like streamer, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sedentary during my work. I'm usually just Same. in a chair in front of the computer. So 
taking a walk really nice. I think it, it, this is the most poignant one asked so far in 2020 because like sitting is the new smoking is a really popular saying that's going yeah. on this year and like it's quietly killing you. And me personally, I need to get out and move around a little bit more. Yeah, I, I definitely do should that. do it more. I, I'm lucky too where the, in Roanoke we have what's called the Greenway. So the, the, the city is actually named after a river, the Roanoke River, which runs from North Carolina through uh, Southwest Virginia. And the river, you know, just runs through the city. And so we have, you know, they've turned the area right around the banks of the river into green space. And there's, you know, occasionally a park, but there's like bike paths and everything. And it's, you know, a 30 second walk from my apartment. So I've, I've, you know, I don't do it as often as I should, but when I, you know, take a walk, I just walk along the greenway, along the river. You know, you don't really have to deal with cars. It's just, you know, occasional biker or jogger or whatever, uh, which is really nice. And actually I can take the greenway all the way to a really good ice cream shop and get a scoop of ice cream at the end of my walk as a treat. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you get to treat yourself. Yeah. I miss yeah. having to walk for school. You know, like when I was, you know, I was, you know, in college campus, we weren't allowed to park on campus. You had to park outside and walk in. I miss having to walk those extra miles every day. It was really nice. Uh, the next one was about Lord of the Rings. We already kind of answered that. So I'm going to skip that one. Uh, Chase says Pokemon TCG. I'm going to go with underrated because I know nothing of it and have it lowly rated in my mind. I have played a handful of Pokemon TCG games in my life. They were when I was 10, so I don't really remember them. I know that essentially the the each of you puts like six cards from your deck, almost like you're playing for ante, but they're called prizes, and you put them off to the side, and you have like your, you know, you, you have your Pokemon that's fighting, and then your Pokemon that are in your party in, in another row, and every time you defeat one of your opponent's Pokemon then you get one of their prizes, and when you run out of prizes, you lose. So, like, when you defeat six Pokemon, so just like you're in a Pokemon battle in the game. So that, that's kind of mechanically how it works. But as for how the game, like, actually works, you know, mechanically, magic works, reducing your opponent's life total to zero, but that's not really the point of most games of magic. Uh, I don't really know, because I've never, you know, played or tried to play it competitively. But it's probably fine. I don't know. Just don't have strong opinions. SS Squirrel says, having a baby. Well, technically, my girlfriend had the baby, but I'm dead. By the way, congratulations. I very recently had a, a, a new member added to his family. I've got to say this has just got to be massively underrated because it's probably one of the best things a couple can do as a couple in their lives. The most rewarding things that a couple can do is, is have a kid. You know, like you want, a, you want a child. You have one. You bring new life into the world. It's amazing. Get ready for all the shit that comes along with it. You know, of course. But Does anyone think it's not amazing if it's something that you yeah. want to do? Yeah, like, I, I mean, let's not get into the... rated. Yeah, yeah, I think it's properly rated. There we go. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. So congrats. The, the next one is from Gold. I'm going to let you answer this one first because your opinion is going to be ill-informed and ridiculously stupid. So well, I just don't have an opinion. It's The Mandalorian. Yeah. I've never seen an episode of it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to answer twice here. Yeah, and I'm I sure think you've so watched every episode of it and care a lot. Yes. So this yes. is a tanning question. Um, I think in some ways it's slightly overrated in the fact that um, everyone thinks it's utterly amazing and they're right that is the part that's they're right there it is utterly amazing so it's overall it's underrated the part that i think where it's over where it's overrated is that people are talking about it's so good because the thing is they're comparing it to other star wars stuff especially the more recent stuff which is all just mostly dog shit you know it's just mostly not good <laughs> stuff like you take rogue one out of the equation because that's a masterpiece but like you know the new trilogy the prequel trilogy these movies are not going to hold Star up Wars well. Over... Special. Yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> that's admittedly like a disaster. Yeah. But th these movies overall are not very good. Like the, the new trilogy is amazingly good to look at, right? 
It's very pretty, very beautiful cinematography, very good. Nothing new happens there, right? In fact, I hated the way they ended. Like, I, I still I still haven't seen uh, the ninth movie again, which normally I would have watched it multiple times because I've watched all the other ones like 10, 15, 20 times. And they didn't do anything new, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go into that. But I think Mandalorian is amazing, especially in the fact that they hit in a niche that, like, I like where the Mandalorian is literally just a Western. It's just, it's just a Western is what it is. It's it's a lot of people compare Star it to, Wars started. It's like a space yeah, Western. It's what it is. It, it went back to the roots. It's, it's 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 just a space Western, which is great, which one of my favorite shows of all time is Firefly. And that's all Firefly is. It's like it's a Western with a sci-fi like theme, you know, theme. Yeah, I was about to say like world. Motif. You know, they're, they've built well, around. Maybe motif is the right word. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I'm not going to go super far into this, but let's put it this way. It's one of the only TV show things that I'm looking forward to right now. And it, also, we're, I'm off a euphoria high because the last episode was so damn good. <laughs> okay. Like, so damn good. I'm not going to spoil too much, but like... They're doing like the, they're, the thing where they release one episode a week, right? Like, it's network television. Yeah. And just yeah otherwise, I just you. wouldn't sleep for a day. I would just watch it yeah. all. Like, I'd be like, what time is it starting at 3 a.m.? Well, it looks like I'm staying oh, up man. all night, boys. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Let's get some Red Bull. You know, that kind of thing. Um, someone already asked the Canada question. Joe asks shaving and beards. I think beards are slightly overrated. And I think shaving is underrated uh, just because I don't do it enough. And when every time I do, I feel really great afterwards. Yeah. So shaving is underrated, but beards are also underrated because beards are just awesome. I say shaving is underrated because I see way too many unkempt beards. And that's just sitting against and, and God. And that's the and reason nature. I have beards slightly overrated because I see too many shitty beards. I'm like, just have some self-respect. Make you yeah. know, make some effort. Make like some it, effort. It, and then yeah. I'll have them properly. Yeah, it's not it's not great. Take care, take right. care of your beard, please. Here you go. One, another one from KFET. Jim Morrison. Uh, probably underrated, but maybe properly rated. Um, I don't know. Like, I just don't have a good sense of how Jim Morrison is rated. Yeah, I mean, like he's 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 one of those people. I think that people are just like, oh, he's obviously a genius, and we didn't get enough, you eh, know, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I don't even know if he was the you know number one creative force behind the doors. Like Ray Manzarek had a huge portion part in that band. Well, then that means then that means he's overrated. But if if that's true, yeah, and, because and everyone just assumes part of their him, you know? part of the important part of their sound was the fact that they didn't use a drummer and instead used the organ. That's really what's what separated them. And that's not Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison was just pretty and. You know, wore those tight leather pants. Like it, it sort of embodied that late. 60s, you say that like it's a bad thing to be pretty. Aesthetic. It's like, a bad stop. thing to only be pretty. If you're not bringing anything else to the to the party, look, you don't need to call it Brennan this bad. Okay. <laughs> All right. The next one from Zeth Four. Being on the play. Uh, slightly, slightly underrated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everybody tries to get cute and figure out the situations where they want to be on the draw. Like. Everybody wants to be on the draw because then they they feel smart. So this is sort of a, like a corollary to feeling smart being overrated. Like you're trying to be on the draw, just be on the play. Like the, the cards are powerful. Being able to cast your powerful thing first, really important. All right. Uh, the next one, I'm going to love this one. This is from Massimo. Forgetting the Rex Sage in your sideboard. So obviously this is underrated because Rex Sage won. It was unnecessary. I won that game anyway. And two is a great cheerleader. It was, you know, after that match, Rex Age was the first one who congratulated me. Yeah, of course. I got to go with underrated as well because it led to one of the greatest moments in the SCG Tour history because thankfully this was on camera. It also led to, if you see the reactions that you can put on posts in Discord, to my favorite reaction. 
that we have, which is just a picture of Ross's face when he realizes <laughs> that the Rex Age is not in his deck when he goes looking for it. Also, so uh, l- let's be clear. I didn't forget the Rex Age in my sideboard. Rex Age was in my main deck. I accidentally brought it out. I did the whole 15 in, 15 out thing because it was open deck list. And, uh, uh, you know, I put the 15 in, and as I was bringing cards out, I just accidentally brought out the Rex Age. So it actually went from in my deck to out of my deck, which is even that more ridiculous sense. when you consider my opponent had main deck blood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense, makes sense. Uh, the next one is running the clock intentionally, both MTGO and real lives. Um, I'm assuming this means, like, you know, when you're losing or whatever, just, like, letting the clock run, you know, like, leaving well, your like, computer. You know, doing things to, like, you know, try to run your opponent's clock down, I think it um, whatever the way you want to answer this, because I think it could be interpreted either way. I think it's just shitty overall. Like overall, it's just crappy. Like here's the thing: I do understand making people play it out in certain situations in your to do it. But the people who do it, where they're like, "Well, I'm going to lose, so like I'm just going to waste your time." Thing, like just have some respect for yourself and your opponents. Yeah. The, the, well, the I'm going to lose, so I'm just going to waste your time and like walk away and have you sit for ten minutes. That's obviously shitty. That just unquestionably. The like doing little things to to try to like run your opponent's clock down. You know, in a certain sense, I can understand that you're just like utilizing everything at your every tool at your disposal to try to win the the game. But honestly, if you take a more realistic look at what you're doing, you're wasting a lot of your time and your opponent's time for such a small edge. Like, just just live your life better than that. Like, even if you know, even if it's two minutes, when you do that over and over again and repeat that kind of behavior, you're wasting a lot of your of your life. You only get one life. Live it better than that. <laughs> it's exactly. a match on Moto. It doesn't. It, it doesn't matter that much. Uh, open decklists and tournaments. I want to refrain from this because I haven't played in any yet with open decklists. But it does seem uh, slightly underrated because I do think it's necessary to play online. Go ahead. Yeah, it's certainly necessary to play online. It's fine. I don't, I don't know if like there's a really strong opinion about this in the Magic community. Like I don't think people hate them or dislike them. They understand when they're necessary and when they're not necessary. And they, you know, they change some things, you know, it makes like transformational sideboards worse and, th- and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a big thing for me. But yeah. none of those things are intrinsically good or bad. So it seems a ve- like a very neutral thing to me. Yeah. And that was from Leo the Modern. The one before that about the intentional call was from Chef Petro. Uh, for this one, I'm going to have a little fun from Dylan the Wizard because it's like a, what is a six parter? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say the part. Each one individually, Ross, and then you're going to say overrated, underrated, and then if you want to come back to one about it afterwards, you can. At first, I want to do something first, actually. Sure. So what this is a list of films is mm-hmm. what's going to happen, but one of them is just Pixar movies as a category. Let's save that one for last. Okay, okay? sure. So, because it's, and then it's you a, do the same for me. different kind of thing. There are six other movies here listed. Well, technically seven, but we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I included the sequel. Oh, without yeah. Pixar, sure. Okay, yeah. you ready? So there's six other movies here, Tannen. I've only seen one of them. Okay, so I'm just gonna say them. You you do that, and then you can talk about it afterwards. So I want you to answer each one of these. Okay, The Princess Bride. This is the one I've seen. Obviously, this is what I would have bet money on. Yeah, it is properly rated because there I've yet to find a person who doesn't love this movie, and it is <laughs> great. All right, uh, Fight Club. Uh, a very very oh no, I've seen I've seen this one too. I've seen two of them. I I forgot. I saw this in college. Oh, very very overrated. Her, her, one of the most overrated movies of all time. I'm going to agree with you on that one, but we'll come back to that. Um, Kill Bill 1 and 2. Um, I think Tarantino overall is overrated, so I just based on that, I'm going to go overrated. So we'll say the same for Reservoir Dogs as well? And Pulp Fiction, because they're all Tarantino and movies. Fiction, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. Uh, so Pixar movies. Um, I also think overrated. Some of them are really good. I love Up in particular, uh, but 
as a group, I think overrated. I've only seen the first five or 10 minutes of up and I just like literally had to turn it off because I couldn't take it anymore. I was like, I can't, I can't, this is making me ball my eyes out. I literally just can't anymore. So uh, you want to do the same for me real quick? Uh, okay. So the princess bride overrated podcast okay, over the podcast. Oh yeah. Podcast friendship. Everything's, everything's done. You just threw it away. Um, I always say overrated because of the fact that it's like, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. I do think the movie is very good. I think it's very quotable. I think it holds up. So I'm going to say properly rated with like, the 0.01% overrated. Everyone loves it because they should. It's great. Okay, Fight Club. You, you Massively overrated for so many yeah, horrible so reasons. Many, yeah, all these like, fucking dipshit dudes who identify with Tyler Durden. Even if you, like, you know, uh, interpret it appropriately with, like, the, the sort of anti-establishment message, I still don't even think it's that good. It's just, like, a bunch of dudes letting out their anger in the wrong way. 100% agree with you. And without going further into it, it's it's a lot of like how the police have co-opted the Punisher symbol and stuff incorrectly. And also I'm like, have you ever read a fucking comic book of the Punisher? He hated you. But anyway, like continue. Sorry. It's, it's just not good. Uh, yeah. Kill Bill 1 and 2. Uh, I think slightly underrated because, you know, so people think they're just like a slash them up gory movie. And, and while they are, it's a Tarantino movie. I think cinematography wise and, and story wise and writing wise, I think this is, I, I think this is where he peaked. I think this is like, yeah. w- like really where he peaked. Okay, Pulp Fiction. Um, I haven't seen it in so long. Probably properly rated, just because Samuel L. Jackson is a revelation in that movie. Good lord, he's so good. That's another movie that gets r- universal praise. Like everyone I know it's, loves that movie. There's a lot of people I know that have it as like their favorite movie ever. Um, I like it because the movie is almost all, all conversation. It's just it's it's on the back of conversation. Like the movie is purely just someone talking to someone else. There's so there's obviously some action scenes and some things that are happening, but it's a movie about an interaction between one person and another one, and the effect that it has, and the conversations are. It's very well written, so I'm a big fan. That is the first time I've heard the movie described that way, and actually really intrigues me because that's the kind of movie that I would be interested in. Yeah, I also saw it at a very young age, so it kind of scarred me because the movie is very stark. Yeah, yeah. and then Reservoir Dogs. A movie overrated. I refuse to watch it's because overrated. I know about that scene with the Steelers wheel song stuck in the middle with you, mm-hmm. and I don't want to see that. It's it's overrated, and that scene's horrific. <laughs> yeah, so, I like that song. Uh, I don't want that imagery in my head. All right, let's get three more out of the way so we can have a, a nice easy one. Ozman says, Fast Mana, uh, underrated because it's one of the most busted, broken things you can do. Yep, underrated. I think people, there's a lot of points where people use it inappropriately and that leads to it being underrated because you're just not like you're putting it in spaces where it doesn't belong like fast man has to be used in a very particular way it's not sort of universally good uh you know like you know otherwise every deck would play saving spirit guide in modern right yeah Uh, but when utilized properly it's just the most busted thing you can be doing actually one of them was just someone saying something so there is only one left for where i want to cut off today it's from massimo it's double sleeving your deck overrated yeah i don't under one I don't know when this started. Two, I don't really get it. Like, I guess, like, it helps protect your cards a little bit. But if you're, like, really shuffling your deck, I can't imagine it provides that much protection. It probably does, like, you know, some schmutz gets into your sleeves if you're just single-sleeving, I'm sure, schmutz. all the time. Yeah, schmutz. schmutz. <laughs> and, uh, and that probably damages the top of the card. So that's where you get so- some advantage. But... How much are you spending on the inner sleeves? You know, I'm sure much less than you are on outer sleeves because they don't wear nearly as quickly, right? But you're still spending a pretty good amount 
So you got to weigh that against what you're saving in the, the protecting your cards and the effort that you go through constantly double sleeving everything. It's, it's horrific. I hear you, but I will say this to me. I will say this. If you want to save a little bit of money on double sleeving your deck and still not sacrifice quality, the BCW inner sleeves are amazing. Yeah. BCW sleeves are just, you know, I, I think they are a half step down in quality from the, the, the top, top, top. Yeah. But they're like 60 to 70% of the price. Yeah, they're and like 30-something so, percent less, yeah. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous how much cheaper they are for, you know, a, not much difference in um, in quality. Like, it, it's it's very small. I think there is a small downgrade, but it's, it's uh, and I if I, if Team BCW stops for whatever reason, I will continue using BCW products. I, I was going to say that I haven't been on the team in over a year now, and I still only sleeve with bcw sleeves in fact it's really funny because my lgs doesn't carry uh the bcw stuff and i just don't buy sleeves from them i just i, I order it i was like i will order the color and the kind of sleeve that i want uh i got through an entire what's the funny name for the purple that we have i can't remember it's uh been so long. oh god hazel hazelberry something like that something basil mulberry berry? mulberry 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 i don't know yeah. i said hazelberry mulberry ECW mulberry sleeves yeah, yeah. the mulberry sleeves are the goat you'd see if you ever watch any of my matches i'm almost always playing in those and you can actually tell that my legacy deck always has those sleeves on it i like went through almost an entire season with just the same sleeves like never had a problem kind of thing so there's your free uh there's your free endorsement bcw i expect a check in the mail as soon as possible i will email y'all my my address you should probably already have it on file yeah yeah, it is on file. So, Rick, you're welcome. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to be ending this week's episode. Ross, if you wanted to hear some more rants from you, where would they go? Your best place is my Twitter account. I'm at Ross Hunneds, R-O-S-S-H-U-N-N-E-D-S. One-stop shop for updates on all my content, as well as a good place to ask me questions. Next is my written content on Star City Games. My articles go up on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this week's episode, uh, article is all about uh, my predictions for the Zendikar Rising Championship. So if you're hyped for that tournament like I am, that's a uh, good article to check out, especially that last prediction. The last prediction is a nice one. And then uh, my non-written content, by which I mean versus live, the web show I co-host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. We're on the Star City Games Twitch channel Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern, playing whatever is relevant for competitive magic, different formats, taking questions live from the audience and having a good time. If you can't catch us live, you can watch the show the following day on the Star City Games YouTube channel. The VODs go up at 5 p.m. Eastern the next day. And then finally is my Twitch channel. I am Ross underscore Miriam on Twitch. I've not been doing much streaming over the last two months or so, but I will announce now that I'm going to be doing a long and fun stream on my birthday, which is this Saturday, December 5th. Nice. Happy birthday. So I hope you get really inebriated. I might have to buy something for I you and ship be, it to you. I will be doing a little drinking on the stream. I might have to I might have to fund some of this. So we'll see. We'll yeah. see. So the uh, uh just a note on that, the my plan is to stream starting in the evening because we're gonna have the Zeneca Rising Championship going on during the day. I'm gonna start shortly before that ends and run into the night. We'll probably do a nice long, like eight hour-ish stream. Uh and it's gonna be fun. So awesome. I'll see you all there. Tannen, I'll, I'll check it out. If we want to hear your significantly worse and poorly opinionated rants, where sure. might we go? Uh, Twitter is the, probably the best place for that. And on there, I'm oh, at just the Tannen Grace. Me, I guess. Yeah, just at the Tannen Grace. <laughs> 
Um, I do have a Twitch. It has been active lately a little bit. It's just uh, Tan and Grace on there. I uh, play limited, more to constructed, but I might be playing some of these cool uh, standard decks that we've been seeing, and maybe a cool historic deck. I, I really like what a Spike. Maybe a cool spike. modern deck that we might have talked about on the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually don't even have Magic Online on my computer right now. I had to make a bunch of space on it the other day, and it was the thing that I was using the least that takes up a significant portion of space. What do you have to make space for? Warzone. How much space does Warzone take up? Way 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 too much i'm gonna have to buy a new computer at this point or just a new hard drive honestly give me a number uh let me look it up real quick um so i'm it's got are you talking about like tens of gigabytes more give me a second here let me find it Uh, i don't think i yeah i don't think i have a full number but i think it's over like 30 like 30 or 40 or something like that if i'm right holy shit and like because like and and they just keep adding stuff to it. The game is massive, like massive, massive. So yeah, that uh, is but a, it's the so it's the best game data. out there. So it's the best game out there. I played every day. So um, anyway, but uh, yeah, that's it for for us this week. Make sure that you check out our Twitter, our Discord, and all that other stuff. Uh, make yourself familiar with that. I, I'm not going to go through the whole show close as usual, but it's at uh, MTG Rants. Uh, there's links in there for the Discord for Patreon uh, people. All of our patrons out there, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm not going to say what it is just in case we can't pull it off, but we have something in the works for the people that have been around for a little while in the patron. So if you've been in there and you supported us for a while, you might have a little surprise sometime soon. I'm really thinking about just asking people for their addresses and just sending it to them without anything else. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I yeah, wish we could do this without them knowing. Do. Yeah, just don't, don't tell them what it is. Yeah. And then I want people to like, res- like you know, post it on Twitter when they get it. And stuff, you should so. also send them an empty box. Okay, sure. <laughs> With a lump of coal in it. Or not a good maybe. person. Yeah, I, I realize this. But anyway, we love all of you. Thank you for the support. Thank you for listening. And uh, please we'll hear some more it. from us next week. Yeah, please, stay, please don't leave us. But yeah, all right. We'll see you all next week. I slipped by, he's like, I slipped getting the groceries up the, the stairs. And they're like, why is your dirt bike destroyed?